The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. gentlemen and welcome to the first ever episode of rediscovering the indies an independent wrestling history podcast my name is chris gullo i'll be joined by jonathan ash hey hey and what we're trying to bring here folks is a little bit of a perspective uh a look back at the independent wrestling stories like incidents uh promotions events uh talent promoters a vast variety of topics of stuff that you just don't hear a lot about. You hear a little bit of here and there, but we, we're going to go into a lot of detail on this show in regards to that. Um, so if you have a topic or an idea, you can definitely shoot us a, uh, a DM on Twitter or Instagram. We'll be getting those up too. By the time this uh, launches, you'll see our social media everywhere with our logo and all that. So we'll have that up for you guys here. First off, I want to thank the uh, BICBP Radio Network for having us be a part of this. Uh, really excited to join those guys. They get a lot of listens on a lot of different variety of podcasts. Uh, especially want to give a shout out to uh, Matt Johnson. Uh, he were actually in a awesome studio space. He calls the Podcast Precinct. Um, a precinct. Sorry, <laughs> I'm no. I'm, I'm botching that there. Precinct. Precinct. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not in law enforcement. So, <laughs> but but, but uh, very cool studio space. And what we're trying to do, like I said, we're trying to do here is uh, we'll be on the road going to wrestling shows, and we're going to talk about our backgrounds in a second, and we'll just talk about these stories. And you hear this and that, and just look into who the who who wrestled who and stuff, and a lot of fun stuff. And you have podcasts to talk about WCW and WWF, WWE, and. Uh, ECW and there's even TNA history podcast now at this point ring of honor history podcast but there's no podcast for the independent wrestling side of things and the aspect of specifically to that and all these interesting strange awesome controversial things that have happened um so that's what we're going to do here uh today's topic before uh before we get into a little bit ourselves is going to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship from 1994 to 2002, when it was basically an independent wrestling world heavyweight championship. But uh, first off, like I said, we'll get into ourselves. My name is Chris Gullo. Uh, been involved in wrestling since, well, I remember ring announcing debut in 2011, but i was been around since like 2010. Before that, I was actually a host of a wrestling talk radio show that was on an over-the-air uh, broadcast uh, for about eight years. So been around a little bit on that, um, and I have a distinct media background, worked in radio, uh, announced a lot of sports, uh, kickboxing, MMA, uh, wrestling, of course, hockey, basketball, and stuff. So fast knowledge here to bring to you guys, and my co-host, I'll let him introduce, myself, let him introduce himself, Jonathan Ash. Hey, I am Jonathan Ash. Uh, if, you're, if you're from the Western New York indie scene or a fan from the indie scene, you've probably been to a show where I've ran production on. Uh, I've been doing this since 2002, started as a referee, uh, trained initially as a wrestler, realized I'm not that good, so I became a referee. Uh, 
within the last 10, 12-ish years, I've parlayed over into production. So running music, running lights, creating videos, filming shows, editing shows. Uh, Some of my edited shows are now on IWTV and YouTube, other platforms. Uh, I'm still out there roughing every once in a while. Uh, still actively wrestle for, or actively ref for Smash up in Toronto area. Uh, had a production now for ESW. Uh, I've recently taken over production for Excite down in Binghamton. And uh, any other indies that come my way and I can pick up here and there. Yeah, so obviously, you know, we have a little bit of experience with independent wrestling, and that's what we're trying to bring to you guys out here. We want this to be a podcast for the fans, podcast for the workers, podcast for the non-wrestler staff, for everyone who just wants a little bit, know more a little about independent wrestling. We've seen independent wrestling create this boom uh, with the advent of streaming and social media. So we kind of want to talk about those stories uh, that you haven't really heard much about, uh, and well, we're going to get right into it now after we got the introductions out of the way here. It is the topic, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship from 1994 to 2002. And we'll start kind of with how this all even happened, how it wasn't linked to a national promotion uh, with the with Shane Douglas <laughs> dropping the title. And we'll kind of lead into that there uh, here. We'll kind of start it off with here in... Uh, early 1990, well, it looks like August 1994, uh, they were promoting the tournament. Ty Gordon was of Eastern Championship Wrestling. They weren't Extreme Championship Wrestling yet, as we're going to get into. Uh, but they were promoting at the ECW Arena. They originally wanted to have it in Woodbridge, New Jersey, which I'm assuming was what Dennis Corluzzo and the NWA wanted. Yeah, uh, it would have been Corluzzo, which obviously is something the NWA wanted. Corluzzo being a big wig in the nwa in the 90s so right there before the infamous incident happens there's already tensions <laughs> oh yeah <definitely. laughs> like, uh yeah dennis caluso longtime promoter of new jersey did not get along with todd gordon or paul Heyman, and it obviously showed like going through the notes going through the observer uh the Wrestling observer for 94 95 Basically, the entire 90s, you just read almost every week there's drama between the Caluso camp with Gino Moore, with Howard Brody, and then the Heyman camp. And it's just, it makes today's indie drama look like nothing. Yeah, and at, at that time, uh, just to give you guys a little perspective here, so the NWA officially t- cuts ties with WCW in 1993. Uh, and then it creates a board of directors. Corluzo's on that. Uh, Steve Rickard from New Zealand. Uh, we talk about Howard Brody's very influential. Uh, Gino Moore and uh, Jim Crockett <laughs> as well, um, which is he, very he, interesting. He was until uh, he stopped paying his dues and they kicked him out <laughs> in, in like 94, 95, I believe it was. So it was quite, quite interesting there. And, you know, we won't talk a lot about Crockett uh, because I think it happens before the Shane Douglas title where he wanted Firebreaker Chip. Um, I think it was right around the time because right. from what I'm – yeah, what I've gathered, uh, there were there are the two the two camps. There was the uh, the Coraluzzo, the Coraluzzo, Brody, Gina Moore camp that wanted Benoit – because they they felt like Benoit was an international star. Benoit did enough traveling. He could defend the belt in other countries. Then you had 
Heyman and Gordon that wanted Douglas and supposedly promised it to Douglas, so that's why they pushed that. But yeah, Crockett initially, what I found interesting, like Crockett did not want Benoit. Crockett said he didn't know anything about Benoit and didn't think he could handle the rigors of being the champion. It just seems like he wanted to go with what he knew. And if you uh, you pull up those world, that one World Wrestling Network TV taping, yeah, there's you see Heyman's influence because Heyman was involved too. There is some of those guys like Malenko's on the show, and but it is a lot of like Bob Orton and Terry Funk and you know just the the go to territory guys. Uh, but Firebreaker Chip, also known as Curtis Thompson. As NWA champ in 1994, I mean, Fireburger Chip, his his run was already over at this point in WCW. Like, what an obscure choice. I mean, I guess Crockett wanted somebody that he knew would be there. And at that point, we'll, we'll, I mean, Curtis Thompson for the next six years would be affiliated with some type of NWA promotions working uh, small indie shows uh, all across the country and even all across the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which like, we found out. Yeah, that's what shocked me too when I'm reading it. Like he initially pushed for like going back to someone he knew. Like he just wanted he wanted the just generic big muscle guy. Um but yeah, that's it seemed like go through that throughout the 90s, you had just difference of opinions and people people who had power that wanted their own local guy or a guy that only got over in their tor- territory because they only cared about their own business. And I think that's the underlying reason of why the NWA in this form, actually the NWA throughout history, just didn't work and why it collapsed in the 80s as well because you had promoters where, yeah, it's a great thing for a promoter to work, to get, promoters to work together, but at the end of the day, a promoter's bread and butter is their home fed. And the same thing with indies now when you have interpromotional wars. Like, yeah, you're helping another fed, you're exchanging talent, you're cross-promoting. But when it comes right down to it, your bread and butter, your money is being made by your fed, not anyone else's fed. So you're going to look out for your fed over anyone else. And, they, I mean, they were realistic at this point. The, I mean, Crockett knew it would be years before he would get to his prominence. Same thing with Corluzzo. Corluzzo had his distinct market in New Jersey, probably wanted a guy that he knew would come there, a guy that he liked to style. You know, Curluzo was one of the – you could say Curluzo was one of the probably pioneers of booking the the work weight wrestlers on the independents. I mean, you know, he did book a lot of, like, former WF names and everything, and there's a great story about him giving out Ahmed Johnson's phone number. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. But this is what I find interesting, and and now and um, Ash, you got these notes uh, from the Observer here. As of now, this is right before the tournament. Uh, as of press time, because uh, this is this is going in the mail. Observer here. As of press time, Corluzo was against giving the tournament approval, but is willing to give in provided a contract is drawn up giving the other promoters dates on the champion. Putting in writing that the champion would agree to lose the belt in the middle of the ring when the board decides to make a change. So it looks like at this point they've already agreed on Douglas, but they're. They have distinct demands. Yeah, uh, and and I also noticed uh, in the notes too where a compromise was made where Douglas would drop the belt to Benoit, and I saw something in there that said uh, as early as the tapings the next day after Douglas won the belt. So his reign would have been twenty four hours if they went with that. So it looked like they all most of them wanted Benoit. They just compromised to give Douglas a reign, and th- that. That was 
a traditional thing within the NWA for years, going back with like Tommy Rich and back when Baba won the belt and uh, many smaller regional promotions would have like the the Smaz ending, uh, like Harry Von Erich too, yeah. where you, you do a quick title change just to legitimize that person and to help pop that territory. Flair losing in the Dominican Republic. It's not documented, but it happened. Well, if you listen to Flair, Flair did that on the spot because he didn't want to get murdered. <laughs> but still, like, like he, he he sensed a politics. riot was happening, yeah. and he was like, "All right, I'm not I'm not getting out of this building alive with this belt." <laughs> but yeah, it's very similar, the same thing where Flair and Holly Race trading the titles during a tour of New Zealand in the mid '80s. Like when Race was past his prime, was the same thing of just popping the territory and giving a guy a short run. And, and and like, do you think at this point Heyman has large visions of being what ECW ended up becoming? Like, I mean, do you think already? Do you think the Douglas dropping the belt thing is something that they already had in their minds? We're going to throw the title down. It's going to be ECW or. He's still like, okay, maybe we'll be NWA, but uh, I, I'm not getting – Douglas is keeping the belt, and then maybe just with the pressure of them wanting Ben want to have it, he's like, you know what? We're going to do this. It's hard to tell what was in Heyman's mind because he's, he can't believe anything that he's said <laughs> over the last 40 years. <laughs> yes. But um, no, uh, I think after the fact, Heyman tried to play it off that he knew nothing, and Douglas did that on his own. I don't believe that. I don't think anyone believes that. Um, it, it's hard to say what Heyman initially wanted because Heyman, as you said, Heyman partnered with Crockett a few years earlier on those WWN tapings, and it seemed yep. like he was at least stringing Crockett along. But I don't think by the mid-'90s, or at least by, like, 94, I believe Heyman thought that he could make a go of it on his own without the NWA. And having Douglas throw the belt down was just to make a statement above anything else. And it made a statement and and i think it was just already you could tell him and corluzzo did just there was bad blood there like i mean and that blood and that went to the end of ecw that went that went beyond went to the end of corluzzo corluzzo's life yeah like there were there were times when i was skipping ahead but there were times when howard brody wanted to work wanted the nwa to work with ecw in the late 90s and Heyman. Reportedly, always said like he was open to it, but no Corluzo. And uh, you, there's the infamous story now, and I can retell it how like you know Cornette wouldn't have done that appearance unless Heyman made good with Corluzo, and then basically said he did, and then <laughs> backstabbed him like yeah, right Cornette, after. Cornette wanted that; he wanted like Heyman to go in front of the ECW locker room and say no hard feelings. ECW talent could work for Corluzo, yeah. and just Heyman avoided that and just collapsed. So, I mean, now I kind of like we're not going to do a lot of reading word for word, but this I I'd really got to talk about this because this is this is just really, again, like so meaty and shows you why what happened happened. So um, Gordon doesn't have the approval to create an NWA heavyweight champion. After making his announcement, Gord did attempt to make contact with Corluzo, both of whom considered the other his rivals because of the close proximity into which each runs indie show uh the approval of corluzo and crockett would give gordon the majority needed to approve his tournament as champion as a press time corluzo was against the approval 
uh, uh, but was willing to give in. Provide we talked about the contract of dates. Now, so I, I skipped around a little bit before. Um, as it stands, the tournament winner is to be in the hands of Gordon and Paul Heyman. I'm going to call Heyman in there, although Crockett apparently has input still. Whomever the decision has been made to give right now, and there is there is someone picked, it isn't of Corluzzo's choosing. Rickard said he wanted the matter discussed at the NWA convention, planned for mid-September, but he'd approve anything. Which, Rickard, you're in New Zealand. <laughs> like, at this point, what is he? Like, I guess, I guess he's technically the president at that point, but. Yeah, but from everything I've read on this, I mean, I'm not that big of an expert compared to compared to others but from everything i read like he was very hands-off with a lot of this stuff like it was mostly corluzo and brody that had pull on all this i mean how viable the territory is new zealand in 1994 anyways at this point like you know i mean i mean they could have been doing well self-contained yes like when i was going through some of these notes uh i stumbled upon an nwa an nwa fed that ran south korea that ran uh, Alaska. They're running uh, army bases, and they were drawn pretty well. Obviously, they're sold shows, but they but did, good sold shows. Yeah, though, yeah, they did pretty well, and they had a few. Na- they had a few old former WWF names on there, but like, I guess Rickard Rickard probably did okay for himself if he continued to run. Hopefully, no promoter would stick around if they're consistently losing money. <laughs> at least back in those days. <laughs> Uh, Crockett was unavailable to be reached at press time, but those close to the situation believe he still wants Gordon to hold the tournament now and crown a champion, although nobody could say they knew for sure, and that Crockett wanted the tournament winner to then come down to either late this year or early next year to a Crockett show in his proposed new territory and drop the strap, which was going to be like Texas and Tennessee, uh, which Crockett would then gain control of like he had control of most of it, it through the 80s. When Ric Flair held the title. So, so okay. So, Corluza wants the champion to predominantly work his place. At this point, it seems like Todd Gordon just wants the champion to be there, him and Heyman. And then Crockett is okay with okaying Gordon's champion as long as he drops it. And in Crockett's new territory, that never happens. It's, it's baffling. Even, like, going through this time around this time, there was an issue with the NWA tag team titles. Because, like, back in the day... Uh, the NBA world title was the only title that was that was defended all throughout the territory, but there would be each region had their own world titles and they would be recognized here and there. Um, Tony Rumble of NWA New England had the uh, NWA tag team titles, and they took it away from him and moved it to a Fed in Texas. And Rumble flipped out. He quit the board. He said he threatened to quit the NWA. And refused to take the belts off of his tag team champions. So there's a big to do with that too. Uh, so it was just a lot of infighting. A lot of a lot of talent wanted their own champions. And I saw that later too with like with Cornette. Smoky Mountain was courted in '95. Yeah, and, which they pretty much that's where Candino defended the title. Well, we'll get into that. But like Cornette was the same way. Cornette didn't want Severed as a champion. Like, there's debate on what he said because he tried to backtrack it, but he wanted he wanted someone, quote, like Brad Armstrong, meaning someone that a Southern crowd would, yeah. would like and also someone that works his territory. That, yeah, which, I, which when we go into the tournament, there's a couple guys that would have been interesting for that. But um, 
I'm going to kind of skip around here, so we're just not reading word for word all, all, all the time here. But uh, basically, Gordon's going to run the tournament and crown a champion no matter what, and so the champion will be available made to Crockett or any other NWA promoter that wants dates on him. He's claiming a precedent was set a few weeks ago when Crockett claimed his own NWA women's champion and then changed the titles as well without seeking approval of the board and informing other member promoters of his plan. So Crockett's already doing what he wants, and so Gordon's like, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> Well, yeah, and like I saw in there, like the yeah the original tournament, like someone from the NWA might be Bob Trobick, the uh, their legal counsel, like threatened a lawsuit, and but uh, at the same time, uh, they had their own like NWA had their own lawsuit, their own judgment that D- that Turner put against them, and they weren't paying that at all. Let me see. Yeah, the NWA board already owes 5,000 legal fees from its losing case last year with WCW that it hasn't paid. And nobody seems to want to ante up the money to keep control of the name. So basically, they already owed money in legal fees to WCW. They weren't going to yeah, they weren't going to follow. They're not going to do the restraining else. restraining order yeah. either. That they so basically, anyone could do anything with the NWA name in the 90s. So um, I think right here we'll skip around to the tournament itself, and uh, so the. Uh, NWA tournament bracket, you have... Uh, tournament number one. Tournament number one, yes. You have Shane Douglas versus the Tasmaniac in the first round. D. Malenko versus Osamu Nishimura in the first round. Two Gold Scorpio versus Chris Benoit in the first round. And 9-11 versus Matt Bourne in the first round. Very Todd Gordon, Paul Heyman-esque tournament. Yes, and also a lot of very, what would become super indie, a lot of... Top indie guys, a lot of international stars. You had Malenko, you had Nishimura, you had Scorpio, you had Benoit. A lot of guys that have worked Japan and are international stars in this tournament. And if I'm not mistaken, Matt Bourne's doing Born Again already in this. Uh, yes, he was doing Born Again in there. Which is also, like, when you look at names on there, like, he's, even though he was doing a Doink the Clown ripoff, like, half Doink gimmick at this time, he he's, one of the, he's still a legit challenger in there. Is he the most South Star. NWA-ish name in this first tournament? Like, like if you want to like yeah. have some of the old school tradition. I mean, you know, you got the Pacific Northwest guy. Plus, he worked all over. Worked Mid South and Continental. All that. I mean, Matt Bourne is that guy that I felt like maybe they would have been comfortable. But Matt Bourne, at this point, who knows how reliable he is? Yeah, in his mindset, he was not reliable at all. Um. Yeah, I would think so. Malenko might be the next, although Malenko and his family always worked outlaw feds and never were like in in good with the NWA. Did that stem from the Knoxville incident? Probably. I think so. I think a lot of that was bad blood with that. <laughs> but like Boris Malenko always seemed to work opposition feds, especially yeah. in Florida. worked worked opposition to Eddie Graham for a while. So I think it was just. Just it is what it is. So there, there you have it. There, there is the title. Is at this point in 1994, is there anyone else that you think would be a good champion? Maybe that wasn't on this tournament, or maybe that was in this tournament. I mean, because here's my thing: Gordon apparently has full control to make the champion. But was there a way that Corluza or someone could have been like, "Oh, well, this guy's really good too. He, he fits." But they knew they could rely on him. Like, I'm trying to think of who would have been kind of doing a lot of business with Corluzzo at the time as well as Gordon. But Terry Funk. Yeah, like, that's that's a weird thing on that time. Like, the Indies were kind of, like, 
it was a lot of former WWF stars and a lot of guys just trying to make a break, trying to get out there, but not a lot of guys traveled a lot, with the exception of like the guys in this tournament. Um, I think Eddie Gilbert would have been good for yes. that. Yeah, and um, both promoters had good relationships with Eddie Gilbert. Yeah, don't know like his mindset at the time with his with his demons, but if you look at someone that was a top star in a lot of places he went and could have been courted as a champion as the NWA champion back in the day as well, Eddie Gilbert would have been perfect for that. Yeah, and, and and to be honest with you, if he would have been approached at that point, he is in the second tournament, which we'll talk about, but if he would have been approached at that point, he probably probably would have absolutely done it cuz that's the thing that that's the thing that got away from him. Um, was, he always wanted to be Jerry Lawler, and <laughs> he can he can be better than Lawler if he held the yeah Lawler never had the NWA World Heavyweight Title. Uh, so then we kind of don't have to go into much details. We know what happens, uh, in which I, I can kind of uh, we'll we'll break down the tournament for you for those of you who don't know. Um, Shane Douglas beats Taz, Malenko beats Anishimura, Tugold Scorby beats Chris Benoit, nine eleven beats Matt Bourne. And is nine eleven the one that's just like what? <laughs> He was believable at that time. It wasn't until like '96 when he worked the giant in WWE and got squashed in like Tombstone. 20 seconds that people saw through him. He he was also I think he was Luger fodder too. People forget that run that Luger just beat every big guy yeah, but in there. It's similar to the Public Enemy, everyone thought they were great until they actually worked legit talent. Um, so then Douglas beats Malenko, which that just sounds awesome. Uh, in '94, Scorpio beats nine one one, and then Douglas and Scorpio uh, in the main event. Now. Before we get into what happens, what do you think happens if Scorpio gets strapped? Does he drop the title? Does he throw the title on the ground? Or does he, or does Scorpio the type of guy, he don't like a lot of drama. He's like, listen, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, yeah, Scorpio would, would have done business. Yeah. So if they just would have changed like the main event like of who would have won, who knows what ECW would have became? Who knows, who knows what the, the people like this? People understand how important this is. This basically put the NWA in some weird, which we're gonna this what this episode's about a very weird influx for eight years, but also created the ECW brand, kind of legitimized Shane Douglas at that time because he was always really just known as an undercard guy in NWA and WWF, and it really made him legitimate and let him cut a promo like he could. Yeah. Um, so the uh, incident happens. What will go down is one of the most public double crosses in a business known for lying and double crossing. <laughs> Todd Gordon's Eastern Championship Wrestling after holding the NWA tournament on August 27th, uh, which is cool because this is this is actually the twenty for, for, uh, one year anniversary this month here. Uh, publicly trashed the belt and the promotion on its television show. Three nights later, it announced it was qu- quitting the fledgling organization. So Shane I mean, Douglas, anyone that hasn't seen that, like it's yeah. on every every ECW documentary on the WWE Network, like everywhere. Like it's the, a defining moment. It's the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's it's the beginning of. Of ECW, and it's really the beginning of like I, you know, I you can even call it a nomad era of the NWA, of or the it really what the NWA was, you know, pre TNA and honestly after TNA before very recently till Corgan uh, um, bought it, just where it's just all these promoters of all different mindsets and no one can be universal and some of these guys are very questionable heavyweight champions and which. 
we're going to get into. <laughs> so, kind of steer to the notes here. Yeah, it was, that was the downfall of looking this up, is that it's so many notes. So, like, just yes. trying to... And there's a lot of back and forth with Cortluzo and Gordon and Trobich and and all that here. And 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 they um, did they sue Gordon and any ECW or they probably didn't because of everything going on with Owen WCW money. I'd imagine. Yeah, I don't believe they did. I'm sure there's threats. Um, it it also looks like uh, Terry Funk did no show. Um, I believe ECW at that time too. Yeah, there's there's a lot of backlash. Uh, obviously, they made up. Oh yeah, um, there's a lot of backlash towards Gordon and Heyman for that, which also I think why Heyman claimed he didn't know anything about it and put all the blame on Douglas to try to like get the heat off of ECW. Which the classic Paul Heyman, huh? Um, Paul, Paul Heyman lying. <laughs> Never heard of such a thing. <laughs> so. We'll wrap this part up because now we want to like this. This is the part that most people know is Douglas drops the belt. What and what this podcast, this episode is what happens to them after. That's what we're going to really get into. But final thoughts on this big part. So this is one of the biggest parts here. Uh, Like if this doesn't happen, obviously it changes wrestling forever. Um, I feel like it could have been done more professional. Douglas wins the belt. Drops it to Benoit, and then Douglas calls himself, well, that's okay. You could have the NWA title. I'm the ECW champion. And I think no one's feelings are hurt. That might have been the cleaner way to get out of that situation. Yeah. I just I also found it surprising where the contract that Douglas signed guaranteed him $500 a booking and airfare, airfare and hotel for anything 200 miles away from Pittsburgh. So you look at that, like that – tells me that Gordon and Heyman were paying him way more than 500 a booking. Oh, yeah. Especially I, in 94 in the Indies. That's pretty decent. And, that's and, a living. And as we talked about, he didn't he didn't have a like a huge WWF NWA name. Like, I mean, <laughs> hey, we're, we're we're bringing in the guy that teamed with Johnny Ace. Yeah. Like, I mean, he had a, he had a decent he he would have had the standard early 90s WCW contract which I believe was around Hundred fifty thousand, mm-hmm. one seventy five thousand. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was like very, very low in there. Uh, so like he was making okay money for a little while before coming in here. But still, like if you if you're you sign a deal saying I right, five hundred a booking plus airfare and hotel, and screw this, I'm going to throw this belt down. Like you're putting a lot of faith into Heyman and Gordon at that point. So we'll go to now. Now, so it's over now with ECW. They're out of the picture. And now Corluzo in September 26, 1994, planned NWA board meetings. And he's planning the NWA Heavyweight t- Tournament for November 19th in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, in conjunction with Tommy Fierro. Uh He's running a four date swing uh, in C- Seaside Heights, Philly, Pleasantville, uh, among the names in the tour are Jerry Lawler, Al Snow, Two Gold Scorpio, Rock and Roll, Gangsters, Dirty White Boys, Chris Candino. It appears the plan to make Benoit champ may fall through because Benoit will be booked with New Japan during their junior heavyweight tournament that week. So I suspect that Candino, that makes Candido the favorite. So the guy that he fought for can't even be his NWA heavyweight champion yeah. after all this. And also what... Uh what comes out a little later is that uh, ECW books a show 
right across the river in Philly the same day to compete with that. And from what I understand, they uh, they had some illegal issue with WCW, and WCW sent some talent to ECW for that show. And if you look at ECW, drew eleven hundred people, uh, headlined by Ron Simmons and Two Code Scorpio against Shane Douglas and Brian Pillman, going head to head with the uh, NWA tournament, which is NWA slash Smoky Mountain Joint Show in Cherry Hill, only drew six twenty five. Uh, and Ron Sim- Simmons and Pillman are just coming off the TV at that point, so. They, they were still active in WCW. Yeah, Pillman was. Yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, but Simmons just left, I think, NWA. But you, so, and WCW. You, and you also had Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan work in that show. Uh, you had Joe and Dean Malenko. So, like, they really... They probably wanted to lose money just to make sure that Corlosa lost more money. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> like, and, then, and that goes into the, the whole debate of, like, the bad blood between them. Because you didn't have to run a date. It was unnecessary, day. yeah. Yeah, especially... Like, what is Cherry Hill to Philly? Like, that's pretty close. I'm sure that's super close. Uh, so what's great is, all right, so you think Gordon's gone, Heyman's gone, the infighting's over with. Don't be surprised, with the notes read, don't be surprised to see Jim Crockett not go along with Corluzzo I'm making uh, uh, Candido the champion. Although, in a strange bit of irony, Howard Brody, who is promoting ECW Tampa Bay show, joined the NWA this week. And that's where Brody really gets into the picture here. Um, he'll be And he'll be there to the end. Uh, speaking of uh, Crockett, his second TV taping was largely a bust in East Ridge, Tennessee. 300 fans were there in a 2,500-seat building. And I want to talk about this because this is the end of Jim Crockett. Um, uh, th- there was a, It was a low-rent look with the only name wrestlers working being the Eagle Jackie Fulton, uh, Siva Mobib, which would be Ahmed Johnson, Vladimir Koloff, Tully Blanchard as a babyface, a few but heel Brian Anderson, Michael Hayes is a manager of a heel team called the Hard Riders, because he's staying out of the ring due to a back injury since he's taken legal action against WCW because of it. Although he did work those global shots in the interim. Uh, John Hawk, which you would know as JBL, Alex Porto, Mike Golden, and then Curtis Thompson, who Crockett wanted to have the NWO too. And then Osami Nishimura, who I'm wondering was just probably stayed in the States for a while. I would assume he's on, he's on several cards around this time, and they weren't – the NWA – as we will find out going deeper in this, they weren't paying to fly guys back and forth on a regular basis. So, yeah, I mean, it really was a lot of regional. And then if you look at this, this was a lot of guys. I mean, a lot of global, a lot of Texas guys, which that's where Crockett was basing himself out of. Uh, You see guys that were working global and big D wrestling and all that at that time. But But, also goes to show like Crockett's old, old school mentality of booking what he knew instead of, trying to build for the future i mean no defense against jackie fulton but jackie fulton's gonna be like your top baby face like <laughs> I, I, I don't know man uh but that that i think that that's the end of crockett that's it he's done yeah pretty much and like, like i said like there's there was a uh news clip a news bit a little bit later where he he was basically kicked out of the nwa because he stopped paying his dues stop paying his promotional dues and I, I think, too, I think there was, like, he wanted to run more, but, like, he had to use, like, Corn- Cornette's ring for Smoky Mountain. It wasn't available. Like, there's... there's yeah. I've there's heard Cornette tell that, that story. Yeah. So, 
now, uh, so now Crockett's out of the picture. <laughs> so it looks like Carluzzo's just kind of getting this all to himself at this point. Um, so Dennis Carluzzo's NWA tournament uh, on November 19th, it will have the Dirty White Boy, Chris Gandino, Tracy's Mothers, Johnny Gunn, Jerry Lawler, Devin Storm, a.k.a. Crowbar, Al Snow, and one more wrestler, likely Scotty Flamingo, uh, on the show. And let's see so now we can kind of really get into the tournament, I think. And at I just want to say Johnny Gunn, aka Tom Brandy, oh. aka Salvatore Sincere, aka the current Patriots. Not the original Patriots. No, the, the current, current Patriots. Patriots. Still still wrestling to this day. Oh, oh, just he's he's a pleasure to he's a pleasure to this, be around. This list actually has quite a few guys still wrestling. This so uh the tournament as a, as was this. Eddie Gilbert versus Johnny Gunn, Tracy Smothers versus Devin Storm. Uh, Jerry Lawler versus the Dirty White Boy and Chris Candino versus Al Snow in the first round. Um, and then I know you want to kind of touch on because now at this point they're teaming with Smokey Mountain who Cornette wanted as champion. Yeah. And from this list, Cornette did work the show. He managed Lawler, who lost to Dirty White Boy by disqualification. Uh, I just found it I just found it like the tale of two cities here where you have the original tournament, which is a lot of international stars, a lot of super indie guys before before it was super indie this tournament a lot of old school southern style wrestlers and a few guys that work that style like like a johnny gun i mean else no but De- devin storm's definitely the uh, at that point because this is this is crowbar when he's like trying to do sabu stuff like oh devin storm was one of the top guys in the indies in the 90s and mostly because him and sabu were working they were setting the world on fire in the northeast with some of their yeah. matches they were doing and and it, in looking at this list i mean can they went with like and we'll talk about it so tracy smothers beat eddie gilbert chris candido beat the dirty white boy and then candido beat smothers i personally would have strapped it on smothers and i say that I'm also a Smoky Mountain fan, so maybe that's where my bias is. But I, I say that being the fact that here's a guy that worked in WCW. He's a territory guy. He has that lineage, but Smothers has an open mind. Smothers will go work the Northeast. He can change his style up. Like, we saw it. I mean, that guy played a fake Italian and reinvented How many times has Tracy Smothers reinvented his career? It's crazy. Uh, that's who I personally would have put the belt on at that time, uh, looking at this list and kind of thinking of who else you know, would have been available at, at who would have wanted to do that type of schedule. Yeah. Um, that's a good possibility. If you just look at just this list, I still think Eddie Gilbert would have been, would have been perfect for that spot. Just considering like he could be the torn champion. Unfortunately, like for what happened with him a few months later, it in hindsight wouldn't have been a good idea, but yeah, uh, I could see Tracy Smothers winning it. Like, Candido winning it just felt like it was a Band-Aid. Um, and uh, pretty much was at that time because he only hold, he held it very briefly and held it until uh, he got called up to WWE to be Skip. It just seemed like when he dropped the belt was a seemed to be a knee-jerk reaction and in a match that wasn't even announced. Yeah, see... Now he must have had no idea, like or, I mean, at that point, WWF have to Cornette has to know that WWF's talking to Candina, right? Well, yeah, obviously, but I think it might have been one of those things where uh, WWE's talking to him. Cornette might have told Brody and Corluzo, "Hey, 
uh, I'm finishing up. I'm finishing up Candido in a few weeks. You might want to take the belt off him. He's on WWE, and it's probably the same thing that we've seen already, where Corluzo and Brody are like, "Oh yeah, we'll get around to it," and they just can't decide on who to put the belt on him. Let's see here, so I'm pulling up the article when Candido wins the belt. Here, it's pulling up a little wackier from when I had it pulled up before. Let's see here, but. All right, there it is. All right, so this was this was actually a wrestling article, which I now I'm thirty, going to be thirty three years old. I remember stuff in the USA Today, but I don't remember wrestling articles being syndicated in national newspapers, like or like local newspapers, as far as like. So this was something called Around the Ring with Jeff Gorman. And this is specifically uh, from the Mansfield the News Journal, but this popped up in tons of newspapers, like the same article. Uh, but it, it just basically says, like, Suicide Blonde Chris Candino had a great night at Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on November 19th. At the end of the evening, he stood in the ring with his manager, Tammy Fitch, up on the shoulder as he headed aloft the NWA heavyweight title. Candino defeated Al Snow, Dirty White Boy Tony Anthony, and Tracy Smothers to become... Uh, the champion of the NWA, whose title history dates back to 1905. You may recall that Extreme Championship Wrestling Titleist, I don't think I've heard that word titleist like that, uh, Shane Douglas won a similar tournament in September only to throw the belt on the ground and disown it, calling the NWA a dead federation. That's misquoted. <laughs> and then it just kind of talks about like that the NWA is different and stuff now, so... Um, a newspaper writer misquotes yeah, stuff? Oh, yeah. Never heard but, of that. But it also says the NWA had only three affiliates. The WWWA in New Jersey. So that's before he's calling it NWA in New Jersey, Corluzo. Uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, which is Brody. And then Jim Crockett's new NWA branch in Dallas. So Steve Rickard is the president, and he's not even <laughs> running. Well, he's not He's not mentioned. <laughs> he's, he's not, who knows what the man's so field time is. so insignificant that a newspaper doesn't even list it. So um, there you have it right there. If you were just popping up in a newspaper in uh, 1994, uh, you know, around the ring with Jeff Gorman, you were going to see that Candino was. And there was a lot of cool little tidbits in there and stuff, too. Um, It was definitely Ohio based, but it looked like there was a lot of national stuff as well. Um, And for what it's worth, Candino did defend the NWA title against Devin Storm in December. um, And it was said to be a good match. I could imagine Candino and Devin Storm was phenomenal yeah candido definitely did what he was supposed to do he definitely went around and defended the belt uh the only problem was from what i can see he never defended the belt in smoky mountain so like your home your home fed you're a mid-character at best and working matches and like that doesn't really help portray the nwa title as a major league world title yeah, so if we want to actually break it down here, um, he held the title for 97 days. Uh, Chris Candino held the belt here, and I'll actually pull up his defenses that are on cagematch.net. But with thanks to all the resources we're using, newspapers.com, cagematch.net, uh, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Um, but if you pull it up here, so this is this was the title reign, and this is it. Uh, he defends the title against Boo Bradley, as you would know as Balls Mahoney at Smoky Mountain. And that he does it on, uh, um, let's see here, J- January 1st, 7, 1995. So that even that defense against Devin Storm is not even in here on Cage Match. Um, 
in I, did find, I did find a lot of that throughout, yeah. throughout going through the Observer, which uh, especially with the Severn Rain, which I highlighted a little bit in, in the notes. So every Saturday, well, if, I'm going to assume in every Saturday night, or but on the seventh, the fourteenth, the twenty-first, and then the twenty-seventh, he defends against Balls Mahoney and beats him every single time in either Morristown, Cookville, Johnson City, or Bourbonville for uh, Smoky Mountain, and then and then it ends. At Smoky Mountain in February of 1995. So basically, his run is Devin Storm, Balls Mahoney, and that's it. From from what it looks like, it just seemed like uh, he was a Band-Aid. That they initially wanted Benoit. He couldn't make it. So they need to put the bound on someone. Who do they trust? Who they know is not going to double-cross them? It's Candido. Plus, Candido, from what I've heard was more or less like a son to Corluzzo. Like, he started in NWA New Jersey. So, There's some sure great WWE Candino Cebu stuff from, like, 93, oh, yeah. I think, on there, yeah. Which, coincidentally, as, you know, if you went further into the Candido history, was a big, uh, a big issue between Corluzzo and Heyman as well, because Candido jumped to ECW and kind of, kind of turned his back on Corluzzo. So, and this is when it all, so just to mention, we didn't mention it here, but uh, the ECW NWA double title cross uh, was fifth place in most disgusting promotional tactic at the 1994 Observer Year Awards. WCW retiring Ric Flair was number one uh, in that. Uh, so, look, we're in 1995 now. Candido is going to drop the belt against Dan Severn, but we have a little bit of news and notes um, like that here. So uh, in one of those that was supposed to be that didn't happen, the erstwhile NW World Heavyweight title was scheduled to change hands on February 4th in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, and the new champion was scheduled to be Dan Severn on a show canceled because of, of bad weather. With Chris, Chris Candido, who holds a title which is recognized but never defended in his home SMW territory, leaving for Titan. So it looks like those SMW defenses, they were just house shows, really. Because, yeah. I mean, they're listed on there. Um, so they had to set up the title match and change for this past weekend. For whatever reason, never even advertised Severn as an opponent. So you got Dan Severn here, and you're not even advertising. You're just saying Candido title offense. It's not like he's wrestling local guy. Yeah. At this point, UFC is getting – they're on pay-per-view now. I mean, they're still very in their infancy, but Dan Severin is known. Like he's, he, you know, he wasn't. I believe he was an NCAA wrestling champion. From from correct, yeah. Um, so he's known. And, but, and and looking at that too, like going back to Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. That's in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> Pennsylvania, in the mountains. Like they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel there. But yeah, like there was that show I canceled. Yeah, the title change. No fan fail whatsoever. Like he was in the crowd of a, they put him in the crowd of a Smoky Mountain show. Uh, Candido came in the ring, called him out, led to an impromptu match and a title change. And yeah, from what I've read, it's more of oh, oh crap, Candido's leaving. We need to get the belt off him. Yeah, and I mean at this point, Severin is working. You know, he is working independent wrestling shows, but he's much bigger. I mean, he's. He's feuding with Royce Gracie at the time in USC. and be feuding is, is like people want to see that fight again. It's a big deal. Um, so we're leading to that. Jim Crockett officially kicked out of the NWA <laughs> for not paying his dues. Uh, they even sent him a season decision where he's not running. Who cares? <laughs> Stop reusing our name. 
did you see what I put in in, in East Ridge, Tennessee? I'm done, buddy. <laughs> like that's um and 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 that was it, man. Crockett never heard from until Starcast. <laughs> Not a single shoot interview, nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think the the kayfabe commentaries timeline or something like oh, that. Like he was, he is on that, isn't he? I he, forget he did he was, that. He was on a few kayfabe commentaries shoots too. But yeah, he's pretty much done with wrestling. Um, and all you really, in all honesty, you really see in the documentaries done by WWE it, with him is, is like, oh yeah, man, it was great. We were buying planes, and uh, you know, I didn't manage my money well, and that's it. That's that's pretty much that's pretty much yeah. what you get out of Crockett. There, you get no other inside knowledge. Not really about the sale or Dusty basically hot shotting the territory. So Turner had nothing. <laughs> like, yeah, I've heard a little bit of him just trashing Dusty, but more of like just professional. Not really be like this son of a bitch, like anything like that. It's more of he just the, 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 a lot of them played the blame game. Yeah, I mean there was burnt out on both sides, and that that's really yeah. what led to it. Um, but yeah, uh, so it's official March sixth, nineteen ninety five. Dan Severn's gonna be brought to Smoke, or Smoky Mountain uh, on February twenty. Oh, actually, this may be a little dated out. So, but they, he was gonna be brought to Smoky Mountain on February twenty fourth. Uh, they need to get the belt off Candino before he starts on a row with WWF the first weekend of March, and it looks like this was the best opportunity. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so Crockett's still running. <laughs> Because they said he's running an NWA show. Listen to this. You ready for this? And I know we, we have a, our good friend Matt who's just hanging out. He's going to pop at this. Crockett, for his main event, is promoting WWF superstar Virgil against Dick Murdoch. <laughs> Jim Crockett booking Virgil. Against Dick Murdoch. In I, I really 1995. Need, who owns the footage of that? I need to see that. Yes. Could somebody find me Virgil versus, versus Dick Murdoch? All right, so we'll kind of we'll get into it. There's a lot of little bit here, uh, but we'll get into um, Severn wins. Severn becomes a champion, and Severn's run is going to be fun. <laughs> as far as what we're what we're going to talk about, who he defended, and this is where we're just going to have a lot of loose fun with this one. Um, yeah, there's it lasted several years. A few things of note here too, like shortly after winning the belt was UFC five, and uh, it was noted that Coraluzo was part of Severn's entourage, came to the ring, and held up the NWA title. Uh, and there was, a f- there was a few other UFC fights he did that too. So that tells me that uh, they just wanted name value for the NWA and figured we can partner with you, partner, not partner with UFC, but like piggyback off the UFC and try to get some name value towards the NWA. So here's a little bit of a what if scenario that I'm, I'd like to discuss. This is the time frame of the failed promotions. And I mean, you talk about global, the UWF, the American Wrestling Federation happens in 95. Like, this is these three or four years where guys come into some money, they run, they fail miserably. It is what it is. Why did Carluza never try to get a money mark like that? I hate to use that word, but like a money guy. Why did Carluza not try to get one of those guys, a money guy? To try to make this national, or was he so comfortable with doing so well in Cherry Hill, New Jersey? I think he was comfortable scamming the, uh, the charities. Um, I, I guess I guess that's too harsh. Um, <laughs> no, from like from reading through the Observer through the nineties, there's a lot of incidences where Coraluzo would run shows with WWE super active WWE superstars where. Uh, 
WWE superstars at that point could work independent days on their days off. Uh, you had to run it through the office, and during that, the mid-'90s, Cornette was the guy in, in charge of that. So Corluzo obviously had the end to get WWF talent. But I think he was satisfied with that. Um, and I'll, I'll clear that up. When I say, like, screw it, like, there was, a, there was, many, op, there was many instances of WWF talent advertised for Caluso shows that no-showed. We, so, I brought up the Ahmed Johnson incident. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Ahmed Johnson, I've heard. That was Ahmed's fault, though. I, I've heard from a few people. Like, I've actually heard from Brian Lassen about that, uh, where, yeah, that was Ahmed just being a dick. But there was many other instances where talent was announced, and for whatever reason, there were excuses of, oh, this guy had a personal thing. This guy had to, this guy was needed for a WWE house show. Uh, this person got canceled. This person canceled. Sid Vicious canceled several times, I've noticed, which isn't too much of a shock. Um, so, yeah, I think I think Caruso was just satisfied. I think he wasn't insurance and just – he did sell insurance at that time. So I think he was just content with doing that, doing wrestling on the side, and running his little area. I mean, because he knew talent, and he kind of knew booking. Like, nobody – there is a lot of talk, love and hate for Dennis Corluzzo, but nobody says he booked bad wrestling. Like, very rarely did he book, like, awful matches. Oh, yeah. or, so imagine putting him with, like – I mean, the, the American Wrestling Federation doesn't get talked enough about its production value. It was great. I mean, it's just doing round systems with Bob Orton and Tito being your top guys in 95 probably wasn't the best idea, but – you take a guy who had money like that and a syndication deal and that production, you put a guy like Corluzo who had the ability to get that type of talent and I don't know. It was yeah, it was amazing in the, the Indies of the nineties where especially going through some of these notes, a Fed could draw an indie Fed could draw fifteen hundred, two thousand people based on a main event of King Kong Bundy against the Metal Maniac. <laughs> like you throw you, you throw Jimmy Snooker on there. Like or Greg Valentine or any former WF name, they were you were guaranteed to draw a thousand or more people. Um, now, whether that would have worked nationally or if it was just in the Northeast, that's debatable on that. But uh, it would you you would do well with just booking former WWE talent. And, and and that just comes from the precedent that they ran all those towns and stopped running them in, in the late eighties and even even. In that, this era of 94, 95, where WWF is suffering, they're not going back to those small towns from before. They're just running the same loop of smaller, but towns they know they'll 100% draw. And- oh, yeah. And, and that's uh, that's kind of where the, the the genesis of the indie scene, like the modern indie scene, started in the 80s when you had feds that you had all these feds going national where WWF used to run Cherry Hill, New Jersey. They used to run all these small towns. They ran high school gyms. And when they went national, they had no time to run all these small towns. So they were only hitting big towns. So that's when you had the Savoldis and many others that would start up their own indie stuff, these outlaw feds or what were deemed outlaw feds at the time and would run these small high school gyms that used to get wrestling. And they were making a living off of that. Same thing for when Crockett went national. Like you, indie, the indie scene in the mid-Atlantic area came up during that time um, because of the same reason. Because you had you had all these small towns and just not enough time for the national feds to run these feds, to run these towns. So we'll uh, we'll get into a little bit of uh, of 
who could have been champion as far as if they took the belt off Severn Perry because that's when Cornette goes into Brad Armstrong and stuff. But just a couple of notable title defenses, and I'm, we may skip around a little bit. But um, Dan, on May 26, Dan Severn will take on Rob Van Dam under UFC rules in LaSalle, Ontario. Like, what does that mean? Where is LaSalle, Ontario? Okay. we, You and I both have worked all over the Canadian Ontario indie scene. And I have, it is escaping me to know where LaSalle, Ontario it is. It is a suburb suburb of Windsor. Okay, that's so why. That, I, I, that's that's on the other side of Ontario that I didn't. I mean, I, I worked at Chatham before, but yeah. But that that's not really hometown, but that's close to the hometowns of RV, Severn and RV. Yeah, so, so you're running they're using hometown. Detroit guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, August 14th uh, in 1995, uh, the Super Bowl wrestling dance ever retained the NWA title, and you had to put this in there, beating Bobby Blaze with an arm lock in about five minutes. Crowd didn't seem into the style, and nobody could take it seriously when Blade, Blaze had offense. I I felt like the Smoky Mountain fans would have been okay with Severin, and, and but Bobby Blaze Severin just seems like too much of a clash at that time. Um, yeah, and like it, it's kind of hard... With Severn, I see that even like with today's wrestling with like Lesnar, where you have this legit fighter, how could you put them against someone that is more of a like just style over substance? Like it's not really believable. And you got two different worlds going here. You got the legit MMA world and the carny old school Southern wrestling. And uh it it, it gets even better. IWA in Japan, um in on August twentieth before 28,757 fans at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium. I don't I mean, was Onita sending that in? <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that number is 100% legit. I'm, yeah, like, but, I'm, I'm uh, sure there's no laundering of money going on there. <laughs> no, um, but uh, he, he came out to the same entrance music reserved for NWA World Heavyweight Champions that Briscoe, Harley Race, and Ric Flair used in all Japan before. And uh, he won in submission. Well, actually, the ref stopping the match while uh, Tarzan Goto was in submission. So, legit opponent. Um, I mean, Japan, it's IWA, though. So, that point in 1995, they're what? Number four in Japan? Maybe number five? Yeah, Around somewhat. there? Yeah. yeah, they're they're middle of the road. I mean, they're not, like, I mean, because you got all Japan and UWFI. Um, yeah, I mean, so they're, yeah, probably like four or five area. Um Oh, but you have FMW, too, and I'll, I'll mention NW Tone and FMW. Uh, and then September 1995, which I know it's a fun little tidbit here. So the NWA had its annual convention in Orlando, Florida, although the only promoters attending were Dennis Corluso, Steve Rickard, and Howard Birdie. That's not a convention. That's a lunch. <laughs> <laughs> like the, that's a hey let's let's go get some brisket and and uh and all that uh they basically decided to drop dan severn as champion as long as he continues to be a key performer in the ufc why would you do that he's making your dates he's making ufc's dates it's not like now we're like a, if a guy does mma we no, saw, they, they basically decided to keep we saw it with swagger Swagger didn't really wrestle at all when he was preparing for a fight. Um, but Jim Cornette had talked about joining, but wanted someone else. So this is, and this is a Cornette like desperation play at this point. Let's be an NWA member because Cornette's out of business two months later. Um, 
but we wanted someone else's champion, such as Brad Armstrong, because Severin's style felt like he didn't get over in his area, which we talked about. But the feeling was Severin has more, far more name value than Armstrong because of UFC. Yeah, and it goes back to the talk about just having someone that can work that Southern style. It's a promoter looking out for his own his own well being. Now, Cornette did uh, dispute that claim in a letter to the the Observer the next week, and basically. Can, he confirmed that he wanted different champ and said someone like a Brad Armstrong, which when you say someone like Brad Armstrong, you're basically meaning Brad Armstrong. He, yes. Like, he yeah. wanted to put the belt on Brad Armstrong. Yeah. Which, uh, you which know, might not have been bad, but Brad Armstrong was a jobber throughout WCW, majority of WCW, or a tag team wrestler. So, like, But he's one of those guys, too, that, I mean, I, I, we, I've talked about it with you. We've talked about tons of people. He's a what? What if someone would have gave him a real shot? Like Brad Armstrong was great. Like oh yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. Just like in the fa- in the perception of the fans' minds, he wasn't that main event guy. But you have to understand too, Corluzo's a smart guy. Howard Birdie, smart guy. You know, they know Cornette's in bad shape. Everyone knows. I mean, they're canceling shows in September. Guys are leaving for pay. Like it's. The writing's on the wall. Yeah, like, was, why would they say, oh, let's give you a chance? You may not even be around. And, like, he had no – Cornette really had no – not saying he didn't want to stay around, but, like, they knew he wasn't going to go all out to try to stay around because he still had a guaranteed job with WWE that he could go to and, yeah. and what he did. So going back to, like, the, the challengers, some things oh, yeah. here throughout, like, 96 that I found right. fascinating that I want to see. Yes. Is Severn against Repo Man. All right, here. So let me – Severn against Jim Neidhart. Let's see here. I'm going to pull up the whole entire ring and, and kind of go over it. So just so you guys are aware of how long Dan Severn had the bell, and we're going to go into some stuff later in his run. He held it 1,479 days. Dan Severn was the NWA heavyweight champion. You brought up – so he, listen to these title defenses, and we'll we'll kind of start from the beginning here. Um, anybody of note, uh, Tommy Cairo multiple times for Dennis Corluzzo. Uh Bobby Blaze, Tom, d- d- Tommy Cairo showing up again. Mad Max, which I wonder what Mad Max that is. Um, here's something I found fun. 1995 – on June 10th and June 24th, Dan Severn defends against Yoshiro Tajiri. So yeah. Tajiri getting an NWA title shot in 1995. Um, Bobby Blaze, we talked about the Tarzan go to defense. J- Jim Neidhart, <laughs> which, could you imagine Jim Neidhart trying to like stiff Dan Severn? <laughs> like, just not wanting it. Like, Neidhart just saying, loosen up, brother. <laughs> Come on, brother. So I want an old school match. Because at that time, it's 1996. Neidhart's having legend matches. Yeah. He's already He's doing, working his Fed yeah. style. He's just going through the motions. Same thing with Repo Man. I mean, he just had that heated food feud against Virgil in, uh, yeah. in NWF or whatever they were called. And like, or NWC. It's 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 jumping jumping ahead, but kind of goes with it. it in around ninety eight, same thing, a similar match that I desperately wanted to see for NWA Georgia. It was really scheduled to be Dan Severn against the Patriots, but Patriots no showed, and Severn instead had a match against the Iron Sheik. And from what I understand, the match lasted all of ninety seconds before Sheik was DQ'd. But I desperately need to see that. Nineteen ninety eight Iron Sheik. <laughs> 
getting an NWA World Heavyweight title shot. Um, some other fun, notable ones. And it's just, it's not just the guys. It's when it's happening. You know, um, he defended against Devin Storm, but he's defending against Great Kabuki in IWA in 1997. He's defending against Typhoon in 1997, an NWA Florida event. Uh, like, did Ty, was Typhoon's offense the, that, that just standing splash in the corner? <laughs> like, I. Now, this, I found this one fun, and you have to be like a Dallas wrestling nerd like me to enjoy this result, but Dan Severn beats Rod Price at NWA Southwest. I did a lot of research on newspapers.com. I'm pretty convinced that either someone had a lot of money on that show or the newspaper put the show on itself because that advertisement ran every single day for a whole month of NWA's World Heavyweight Champion, Dan Severn, versus Rod Price, NWA Southwest. Yeah, it, someone someone had a stake in that. Or, or did Rod Price sell, sell the most amount of tickets so we got the match? <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, Rod Price was a staple. Uh, I mean, a global and and, uh, and all those, you know, sportatorium, all that stuff. Uh, but let's see here, because I think I had... I what was I, the draw of that show? <laughs> I know, I thought I had the link. I guess I didn't have the link there. Um, but I, I had, it, it was it was just fascinating to see the advertisement of that show. Yeah, Cage Match doesn't have the attendance figure for that, but like... It's probably a typical Dallas like lineup, too, Brian I imagine. Diaz, yep. Crusher yeah. <laughs> Kong, Scott Putsky. <laughs> Red Dog, so Ronnie Mack. That's a that that's a Dallas indie. I mean, minus Red Dog, that's a Dallas indie show in in yeah. the mid nineties for sure. Um, but that 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 one fascinated me. Rod Price in nineteen ninety eight. Like what? Uh, Simon Diamond <laughs> in nineteen ninety eight. Doug Gilbert in ninety eight. I mean, if I'm if I'm to believe, like if Severn got the same contract that Douglas got, he's getting five hundred a booking for this. Like if he. Five five hundred dollars a booking to come in to do a ten minute match, twelve minute match where you're going over, like eh, that's good supplemental income when he's oh. also doing shoot fights. And he's and he's I mean, dude, he's wrestling all over too. He's a real touring champion. Yeah, like he defeats Craig Pittman, which I loved. I have a Craig Pittman action figure. I mean, that might actually have been a competitive match. That actually been pretty good. That. I want to know which Doink the Clown this is on July seventeenth, nineteen ninety eight, because it's in British Columbia. So this is probably the beginning. Of, well, Dusty Wolf's already doing fake doink, I think. Yeah, Dusty Wolf was doing uh, overseas tours. So <laughs> it was not Rob Cook. <laughs> so yeah, it's a Dusty Wolf wrestling in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, this one, which I really, I really want to see, the NWA 50th anniversary show uh, against Steve Regal. Um, and we'll talk about the anniversary show when we get a little further. Uh, I Dan, believe that's out there somewhere. I've just never seen it. And Dan Severn defeats Hack Myers, and then before he drops the belt. But the stuff that we haven't really got into, which I didn't mention this guy, this opponent, because it's got a great story. And I don't know. You were very excited to talk about it, Ash. And I think we're at that point in the notes anyways. You want to talk about the uh, Dan Severn Dory Funk <laughs> incident? <laughs> So, 56-year-old Dory Funk. Uh, this is great, guys. As I'm going through the notes, like, Severn's beating all these guys. He's beating people left and right. And then he has a few matches with Dory Funk that go to a time limit draw. One in 97 went to a time limit, 30-minute time limit draw. Another one, two months later, went to a double countout. So, like, Severn could beat anyone, but he couldn't beat middle-aged Dory Funk. 
So, kind of odd. So, I'm looking, as I'm going through the notes, there was a, uh, there was an incident where um, the NWA had asked Severn at the last minute, at the day of the show, to drop the belt to Dory Funk. Severn refused. So, according to the notes, uh, Corluzzo was afraid that Severn was going to jump to ECW to work a program with Taz, and they wanted to get the belt off him. Obviously, it never happened. But there's also a little bit more to that story, too, where uh, Severn and Funk on that show had a had some issues. I guess Marty Funk, Dory's wife, uh, was being inappropriate. She's infamous on the internet. Yeah. Uh, she and Severn had words over something. Dory came out. Him and Severn had, had a talk. Dory Funk, 56-year-old Dory Funk, challenged Severn to get in the ring and settle it. Uh, Severn, from, from all reports, did not want to beat up an old man, but there's enough people watching that he kind of felt he had to. And this was after the show. The ring is half torn down. No ropes on the ring. They get in the ring for a amateur wrestling slash shoot fight where uh, went to a little while. Severn got the better of him, obviously. And Severn just got up and was like, I had nothing else to prove and left. And then, of course, Dory, uh, Dory came back and said, I spent about five minutes seeing how good Dan is. I can tell you, just like I told Terry when he called, he's damn good. Uh, in regards to your story, he may be quicker and more technical than me, and he may not, but I had him down twice. Not to say that he didn't take me down. He was the one who walked away. Whether he was mad or he was blown up, I couldn't tell you. So Dory's still talking shit. I like this just fascinates me Be, because it's 1997 and and like what is, I get it. Dory Funk still working in dates. He's still working for Corluzo. But what makes him think that's a more legitimate champion? And here's where the pettiness. This is all right. We were talking 1994. We're in 1997. The pettiness still continues at this point. Severn has already been on WWE television. He's did color commentary. Vince McMahon's putting him over, uh, saying he's, you know, winning all these belts and this and that. And and he's the toughest man alive and all this while he's doing uh, commentary in Ken Shamrock matches. But the threat of him going to ECW and and, and dropping the belt to Taz or even just having a program with Taz. They they just automatically freak out like Severn could have been on Raw jobbing to headbanger thrasher like that worry did not enter carluzzo's mind but the fact that severn could work taz freaked him out enough where he's like we gotta take the belt off you and at this point like here's the thing like taz they're portraying taz as this is badass but he never like in his little feud with paul the polar bear pulverins varlins him and he never got really one up on varlins they didn't make varlins look like, like a jabroni and i don't think they would have done that with severn either well, there's also the rumor of Violins getting drugged or Missy Hyatt spending some time with him to, like, loosen him up. <laughs> like, you know, rumors. Yeah, just, just rumors. But supposing the, the heavy rumors that Heyman was afraid that Taz was going to lose, so they have had, had to do some stuff for that. Maybe maybe Carluzzo believed those rumors and didn't want to put didn't want Severn in that position to lose. But either, either way, like, Taz was... 
by that time in late 97, like Taz is legit. It's not. Yeah. Like losing a, a match to him w- wouldn't have hurt Severin at all. And it's not going to hurt your draw in, you know, Oak Ridge, Pennsylvania or wherever. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, that guy lost to Taz on hardcore TV that we have to watch in syndication at midnight on Saturdays. Like, <laughs> that's how it's. But they will say, oh, yeah, that was the guy that lost to T.L. Hopper on superstars <laughs> like you know because that's in every market and what's, um, what's even weird like jumping ahead a little bit like in 98 there was rumored to be a a interpromotional talk of an interpromotional match between howard brody and ecw to work an angle where uh brody wanted offered Severn to Heyman to do Severn versus Shane Douglas title for title on a pay-per-view, on an ECW pay-per-view, where Douglas would go over with the provision that Douglas would drop the strap to Severn shortly after. And there wasn't even an agreement to do that on pay-per-view. It could have been on a Caluso show or a house show somewhere. Yeah. And from what has been reported, Heyman, Heyman was open to talks as long as Caluso wasn't involved. So he would have dealt directly with Howard Brody and Severn. And then Heyman also came back with he wanted he wanted Taz as the NWA champ to replace the FTW title to give Taz some legitimacy to be the NWA champ. And then, of course, that got next never happened. I want to kind of backtrack real quick here. Um, it was it was kind of a what if I wanted to talk about and, and something that's not it, there was never any talks. There was never any conversation. But it's a thought in my head. Why didn't the NWA, especially 95, where they're not the promotion they used to be, approach the USWA about a partnership? I mean, you had steady television, still steady draws, a great talent base. Guys there that you could have put the belt on at that point in 95, 96, 97 to the end. That was, I mean, Brian Christopher's NWA champion. Is it that bad? I don't think so. Um, I mean, even Bill Dundee getting like that old man run, you just or Lawler probably would have had it at one point too. But I mean, at that point, you're you're fledgling. I mean, yes, the USWA is not the Memphis of old, but it's still like I know as a kid, I knew what USWA was because they're all on syndication. Like we, I brought up the fact that him promoting with the guy with money, but what about the NWA just partnering with USWA? I think there's a missed opportunity for both yeah. sides. I mean, from what I've what I've researched, uh, obviously Lawler was in that tournament, the second tournament. He had national exposure being on WWE, but I think they probably just felt like it wasn't worth strapping him at that point because he wouldn't be a torn champ. Because he, he's also working WWF. Yeah, he's working WWE. Every Monday night, he had to be either at the arena, at a arena for Raw, or he was in the studio. He was in the studio in Stanford doing voiceovers. So every Monday night he wasn't available. And also, like the, I guess that would be something to ask Jerry Jarrett. But the NWA was never – or the USWA was never really a strong NWA territory. Like they had Flair come in as the NWA champ time to time. Like they had a better partnership with – the AWA and Vern Gagne, mostly because they wanted they wanted Lawler to have a short run as a world champion, and they accomplished that already with Bachwinkle. 
You would think, and, and, and you know, when we eventually do a USWA episode, because we will, um, it may be a question I want to ask Randy Hales. Is like because when Randy Hales took over, it's different. Like Randy Hales, like was had a very open mind. So I wonder if like if maybe he had the idea and it was shot down and just never made the dirt sheets. Or it just seems weird. Like okay, you wanted to be a part of ECW so bad, they shoot you down. So now you're fledgling. Wouldn't you go to like the promotion that was pretty much on ECW's level until about ninety five, ninety six, which would be the USWA. I don't know, just my opinion. Unless but. they just saw it as a Carney co- company anyways. And <laughs> Jerry, I, I could definitely see Jerry Jarrett not wanting to deal with other people. Uh, and even Larry Jerry- Burden in a desperation move in 97 when he buys the company. It's still even there, you know, bringing Dan Severn in. Nothing. It, it blew my mind that n- never anything with the NWA. Yeah. But anyways, back to 1998. Um, so Severn shows up. On uh, WWE uh, television uh, as the ch- as the champion, and they do the whole thing. We have the new Midnight Express, and Jarrett's the national heavyweight champ or the national champion, and, or North American heavyweight champion. I'm sorry, and you have Barry Windham and Bradshaw and all that. But just with Severn showing up and all that exposure alone, they've expanded to 18 different members. And uh, and looking at this list at this point. Um, uh, Danny Davis, Ohio Valley Wrestling. There's some notable names here in 1998 who joined the NWA. Uh, Sean Brown of Maple Leaf Wrestling, which we're pretty convinced is Shooter Sean Brown, who we both have experience with. I'm pretty convinced that's it. it possibly, because I first met him in 2004. So like it, the time frame can match up. Um, yeah. Steve Carino uh, is on this promoter list. Bill Barons, Burt Prentice, Victor Canones. Uh, I, I mean, look what a little WWF Bob Trobich. Look what a little WWF exposure does for you. Ernie Todd, uh, another name, and, and there's a bunch of others. Those are just notable names that I'm familiar with, or you fans may be familiar with too. I mean, they're they're partnering with. Uh, so Tony Rickard is now Steve Rickard's brother is running in Honolulu, Hawaii. <laughs> like it's. It's crazy to think, like, look at all these, like, promotions that just stem up, and there was three members for the last three years. And because they're not on WF television, there's 18 members. And Severn was more in demand now than he ever was because of his value off of WBTV. And, uh, I mean, we don't have to get into a lot um, during his run in WWF because it really has nothing really to do with the show. But one thing I do, I did want to bring up on a little another what-if topic here. Um, or why it never happened, but he, I don't think if I could be wrong in this and you would be the guy to correct me because you would know he never defended the title of WF, did he? Uh, that's why they showcased the North American belt. I think, I, I think they showcased the North American title more because they needed to put something on Jeff Jarrett and he was under contract with them while Severn, I believe had the loose deal that he could go and do anything else. I I don't know off the top of my head if he defended the belt in WWE. Uh, his run in WWE was like during that time was kind of weird. Like there was a time period where he stopped coming out with the NWA title, and they weren't yes, recognizing. Yes, I him. remember that. But yep. then he did, and like the first show he did, I guess he complained to Jim Ross about it. And when they wanted him back, they kind of like phase started to phase him out of that time. Who, if he does drop the belt in WWF? Who do you think would have been good to have maybe that loose deal where, like, okay, 
this WWF star can go work on the independence as the NWA heavyweight champion. You know, we're showing that we're working with the NWA, but, you know, maybe it, and you've seen it. They talked about strapping Dory Fong, like the whole thing with I mean, the Candido, like, I don't think they wanted to get rid of Candido. They weren't 100 percent sold on Severn. I think Coraluza was the only one. So, you know, until he wanted Dory Fong to win the belt. So now you look at it. Who do you think maybe in the WWF at that time in 1998 would be like, hey, let's strap this guy. He'll work the indie shot, so it can't be somebody super big name, but it would, you know, be a pretty prevalent. And here's my answer, and I want I'm interested to hear yours. And I know this sounds because at this point the Goldust character is fading out. Dustin Rhodes. You give Dustin Rhodes the championship in mid nineteen ninety eight to be the NWA champion. He's got that Rhodes name, NWA. It just to me it makes sense. And honestly, he was such in a rut at that time he was doing the stuff with luna and it, he was just a very odd i mean he did break away and become dustin Reynolds yep. a few months later so yes. like yeah uh that could work the the problem i saw with that like i don't really have a good idea of like who could like barry Wyndham was one because he fit with that yes but at the time he was a shell of what he was in 98 but the problem with that was like they weren't going to strap triple h because Something no. like Triple H. Triple H isn't going to work indies. No, Triple H isn't going to work a Dennis Caluso indie or a Steve Rickard indie. Like that was a weird thing. Like WWE talent at that time could work indies on their days off, but it was mostly the undercard. Well, guess that, who did a lot of them? Dustin Rhodes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the the undercard did on their days off because they weren't in high demand. Like yeah. Steve Austin obviously was high demand. Taker was Foley even at that point was in high demand, even though Foley still worked IWA Mid South and a lot of indies at the time. So uh, it's hard. Like you strap someone like an Al Snow or someone like a lower level level guy, it's going to look worse for them if they're on Sunday Night Heat jobbing out to Beaver Cleavage. So uh, and then and then so then the belt. The, NW, the North American title leaves, and then the NWA angle scrapped. The Colorado Kid uh, won, won the title, or in nineteen ninety, the North American title, which will dub that. But that's yeah, the I first. Think- pre- that's the first power play. So now Corluzo's been controlling it, and here comes a little bit of a Burt Prentice, Bill Barron's power play. Yeah, I put that in the notes too, because Colorado Kid in December ninety eight started going to other NWA offices, defending the North American title. And I put that in there because that's sort of like a homage to the old days. When you when a promoter had someone he wanted to put in there, he wanted to nominate for the title, you send him to all the different territories and you get him seasoning. Yeah, and you you have the other promoters look at him and and give their opinions on him. And it seemed like that's what they were doing with Micropata, with Colorado Kid, sending him to the other territories. So, I also did like in NWA Southwest, he faced uh, Greg Valentine. Yep. As you know, in NWA Florida, he faced Greg Valentine. But like nineteen, <laughs> I forgot about Greg Valentine. Be the Defending or going for the title too. Yeah. Um. So now, so now they had this national recognition, but then the NWA angle gets scrapped. And now, what do they do with the title? It's time to take it to Japan. Uh, and Anoki uh, made a deal with Howard Brody uh, using Hiro Matsuda as the intermarries to set up an NWA title chain where Dan Severn will lose to uh, Nagoya Agawa uh, on the Yokohama Arena show on. Uh, March 14th, which that's he officially lost at March 14th there uh, at a UFO show uh, in, in, in Japan. Um, but the NWA board originally approved Severn losing the belt to Doug Gilbert, which would have been the night before 
in Tom's River, New Jersey, but pulled the date when the more lucrative UFO deal came through since Gilbert was would be available to work for more member promoters, unlike Severin. Yeah, so it basically came down, again, to who can work all of the promotions. And Doug Gilbert was thrown in there. Now, Doug, at that time, I feel, gotten much better than he was a few years earlier. Like, And he was a more well-rounded worker during that time. Like, He could have had a good run with the belt. Uh, but again, their reasoning to put the belt on him was solely business, not can he have good matches, can he... You know, can he draw fans? It was he can make dates. Uh, so what what I find funny too, this was a little tidbit. Um, this was actually from the Battle Creek uh, inqu- uh, Inquirer um, in nineteen January nineteen ninety nine. So right before Severn loses the belt, but they promoted him as an NWA champion. But they said he works for more than thirty other corporations. So calling independent wrestling corporations, that, that, that really cracked me up about that article. And other than that, it just kind of talks about what Severin's done and all that. NWA title was mentioned in the first, uh, like, probably, like, eight sentences, and then it's never mentioned again. <laughs> so uh, I, I find that at that point, he's doing an interview with Battle Creek, and he's not even bringing it up. Like, he knows he knows it's over at this point. Yeah, and from, and from the notes in early 99, it just seemed like Corlozo was sour on uh, on Severn. Basically saying, like, uh, he felt Severn doing jobs everywhere for Steve Blackman hurt the title, and he needed something big to rebuild it. So these other title reigns are going to be kind of like rapid fire, but before we get to that, um, and this will be like another, just one, of, probably one, one of our last big, like, talk talking points. I know the era is not seen as a great era, and they weren't on national television other than the WWF stuff. But in my opinion, Dan Severn has to go down as one of the greatest NWA heavyweight champions of all time. And I know I'm not saying he's on par with Flair. I'm not saying he's on par with Terry or Dory. But is he higher ranked than probably any of the TNA guys? Probably. Should he be higher ranked than really anybody that held that belt? After Flair in '93, oh, definitely between he is is he, so. Can we agree that he's the greatest NWA heavyweight champion to not work for the NWA? <laughs> I mean, I yeah. mean, when you look all at this, it. all this may get to that point, but I, I I think so when you look at it. I mean, NWA champion traditionally was always a legit wrestler. There was really no, there was no charisma when it came to like Luthez and and. The, the champions of old up until Gene Kanitsky, Dory Funk Jr., they weren't charismatic. In their own way they were, but like not to the fat not to the point of a Dusty Rhodes or a Ric Flair or a Tommy Rich or any of the stars later on in the later years. So like Severn is Severn was really a throwback to that era. But when you look at everything since then, yeah, um I think he probably was the more the best pound for pound best wrestler up until AJ Styles won the belt. Yeah, but not even not even early AJ because AJ still didn't find himself until I think AJ like winning it from Angle AJ right. Yeah, he won from Angle. I can't remember, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, yes, Angle and and, and well, Christian. I think that was that was after. Oh yeah, no, yeah, right. That That's was right. Angle wasn't yeah. cha- Christian was the last one I think. Wasn't yeah, he? Christian Christian was before they dropped okay. before TNA dropped the. 
Which that will be an episode for another day. The NWA after TNA. Gonna have to watch a lot of TNA. Okay. Well, we'll talk about the NWA after TNA. That will be another episode for another day. But that's a good one too. The whole lawsuit and all that. That one's really interesting. Um, So Oga. Sorry for the mispronunciation there, but uh, Ogawa wins the belt. He actually goes back to the States, defends against Severin twice for NWA Southwest, uh, uh, twice in, it looks like, one night. They did a time limit draw and a double countout. Um, then he beats G- Gary Steele, Doug Gilbert, Frederick Helm, beats Gary Steele again, beats Biggie Biggs. But you know what? The third time's a charm. At the NWA 51st anniversary show, Battle of the Belts 1999, Gary Steele <laughs> defeats Ogawa and Brian Anthony, which I'm assuming. Uh, oh, actually, no, Brian Anthony did not get the final pinfall. It was Gary Steele eliminating Ogawa at the end. Um, I think it might have been a like a triangle type. Yeah, we had to pin both guys. Uh, I could be wrong, but I believe that's what it was. The NWA 51st anniversary show. I mean, this is interesting. You had Triple X, Curtis Thompson, Drake Dawson, uh, uh, and and a number one contender, Semifinal, against the Sex Pistols. David Young. It's the first time you ever see David Young. It was kind of notable. Some here. uh, Rage, which was with Samu and Quinn Magnum, is on this for the NWA World Tag Titles. Uh, It's just a very mosh posh 51st anniversary show. Ron Garvin defeating Stan Lane. Uh, very interesting. But, but uh, yeah, that... Oh, Tony Kazin is on this show, too. So is Chris Hero, Buck Quartermain, Air Paris. This is, this, Gary Royal. Cast. This is an interesting... Uh, but, yeah, get... All right, so Ogawa, kind of a name in Japan. Onoki was really trying to do something. Made a lot of sense. Gary Steele... His selling point that he was from England, but he never, he didn't wrestle in, like, I mean, he wrestled in England, but he wasn't, like, notable in England. I mean, yeah, I. but he only held the belt for a week, so obviously it had to be more of a political a political thing to have him go over for the belt, if anything. Ogawa probably wanted out of there. That's, you know, and that's the thing. They wanted to do Ogawa versus Hashimoto, Japan versus Japan, and it just, it, it, it never happened here. Um uh, which we'll we'll talk about Hashimoto in in a little bit here. And n- when you talk about political things, looking at the title reign, so uh, Ogawa wins it again <laughs> over Gary Steele, which, but then on record with Cage in, match in Connecticut, wasn't it? In uh, yeah, uh, it was in Yup Connecticut for NW New Tom- England Tony Rumble Tomatson Connecticut, where a. Po- Tomatson, Connecticut has a population of seven thousand eight hundred eighty-seven. <laughs> uh, are they in a, are they a metro area of something? I imagine they're probably close to Hartford. I, um, well, let's let's look that up. But what, not, not that it matters, but I always, <laughs> I'm, I'm always fascinated by like some of these major title changes that happen in the middle of nowhere because we've worked our fair share of indie feds in the middle of nowhere. Yes, I love middle of nowhere shows. They're the best. Oh, it's. It's like halfway between Danbury and Hartford, but it's still like it's still middle of nowhere. Probably like like what Batavia would be to Buffalo. I just find this interesting. Ogawa holds the belt again for quite some time, and he only on record defends it three times. One he be, well he beats no defends it twice. He beats Gary Steele, um, and then he. 
beats Hashimoto, and he beats Rob Peters. And and for having the belt for 274 days, that's it. And then it's vacant. Uh, I'm sure. Do we have any notes about why it became vacant here? Yeah. Uh, one of the Agawa-Hashimoto matches, there was something Inoki really wanted. Inoki wanted the belt to legitimize that feud between Agawa and Hashimoto. They had a match, uh, I believe, 58,000 at the Tokyo Dome, which I um, (laughs) 58,000. Yeah, I don't find that. Yeah. Um, Well, Meltzer said heavily papered, so take for what it is. Um, Agawa, I believe, threw out his shoulder, um, so he was injured, uh, and obviously they had to take the belt off him. They also, uh, in late 99, uh, Inoki tried to schedule another North Korea show. Yeah. So I, found that, I found that interesting because he, he wanted Ogawa on that show. Yeah, and that, and that would have been without the support system of WCW, which is very interesting. Because yeah. at that point, he's, out, he's not with New Japan. Um, and they have a rocky relationship in 1999 at that point. Oh, yeah. Uh, New Japan and WCW. Uh, let's see here. Trying to find early two thousands, Corluzo was kicked out of the NWA over financial issues. And then he sued him. Yeah, well, of, of course. <laughs> or he left over three thousand dollar financial dispute, um, including money owed to Nagawa to Ogawa when he worked shows, along with disputes about merchandising and trans for the fifty first anniversary show. There was a lot of issues with some of these anniversary shows. One I did see of Bill Alfonso getting into a fist fight with, <laughs> I believe, Howard Brody. <laughs> uh, over not being paid for the show. Oh, Bill Alfonso. I love that Bill Alfonso is on the Independence again, by the way. Can I just say that? Um, so while you're looking that up, I-, I wanted to talk about the interesting. So here's what I love is we have this time period of eight years of the NWA title. And what's the one name that people always bring up? Like, oh, well, this guy held the belt. <laughs> the Colorado kid, Mike Rabada. Yeah. He only held it for 56 days, but I feel like that's what everybody takes away. Oh, didn't Mike Rapata have the belt? Like, that's what people take away from it. But at the same time, when you look at some results from the 90s, like, Colorado Kid was uh, it was everywhere. Like, there was a group of indie guys that traveled, and they worked everywhere, and he was one of them. So, like, yeah, kind of, like, when you look at, like, Flair, Race, Funk, Mike Rapata, like, I get it. I get that he doesn't fit in with that, but if you're looking for indie guys, he, he held it for a little bit more. He held it, like he quickly dropped it to Sabu, and then he dropped to Sabu, and then quickly run, won it back. From what I believe is Sabu's body was just breaking down and couldn't defend, so yeah. they fi- figured they needed to get off him. How, how Mike Rapata got it, though, I do want to talk about that. Uh, that they were playing into a title tournament. Uh, back, this was the observer, September 11th, said it was going to be Steve Carino, Fidel Serra, Dan Severn, Hector Guerrero, Kendall Windham, Kevin Northcutt, Greg Valentine, and Joe Malenko. Gary Steele of England was going to be the final participant. He pulled out, and Barry Windham is now working construction full-time and couldn't get off work. Barry Windham, who was NWA, World Heavyweight Champion, had to work construction, <laughs> couldn't work the show. He gets the call. Hey, do you want a shot against the NWA World Heavyweight Championship? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Let me ask my. I don't have let any me ask PTO. my foreman. Yeah, let me ask my foreman. I'll get back to you. Um, 
Severn was was pulled was pulled uh, before being added to the UFC show three days later. So that's now this is the era of two thousand where MMA doesn't want you to work wrestling at the same time. That that's where it seems to be changed. because you see it with Shamrock too, uh, he basically leaves and goes and focuses completely on uh, on that. So then we have that tournament. I actually pulled up the results on Cage Match. Um, first round match: Greg Valentine and Joe Malenko went to a no contest. Uh, Great way to start a show. Kendall Windham and Stone Mountain, who's in the tournament out of nowhere, double count out. <laughs> Uh, Mike Rapata defeated Hector Guerrero. Jerry Flynn defeated Fidel Serra, which led to that's it. Mike Rapata and Jerry Flynn. Jerry Flynn in the World Heavyweight Title match, and Mike Rapata defeated Jerry Flynn to win the title. By the way, that show also had a lights out first blood match between Steve Kern and B. Brian Blair in two thousand. It also had Adam Windsor against Dory Funk, and Windsor was Dory's uh, Dory's guy. If I if I remember right from the notes on that, there were some issues with that match going way too long. Where Brian Blair came out, cut a promo, telling apologizing to fans for the boring match that happened earlier in the show. <laughs> um. So yeah. So and then we'll, Mike Rapata's run. I mean, he beats Chris Harris. Chris Harris would have been a great NWA champion at that time. Uh, defeat maybe, Sabu. Maybe later. I don't maybe know about la- that time. Uh, he's doing WCW. Pre- Pre-Brain Walker. He was doing WWF job matches. I mean, he's he's a notable like Midwest Southern indie guy at that time. Um, and then uh, Sabu defeated Mike Rapata. Uh, and this was the year of Sabu where he was kind of in limbo. He left ECW. He was doing XPW. Yeah. He was just working anywhere he can. Um, but again, the Florida Night down. of Decisions. That the NWA Florida Night of Decisions. That was the name of the event. So Sabu wins the belt, and now you could tell Corluzo's out. Howard Brody's pretty much the primary NWA promotion. So then Sabu, um, he defeated Corey K and JB Destiny at PWX and Pittsburgh Brewing Company. <laughs> I'm sure that didn't draw great. <laughs> um, he also defeated Chris Hero at. Uh, House of Hardcore in Charleston, Indiana for IWA Mid-South. Uh, is it, that, that's crazy. The NWA title being defended at IWA Mid-South. Now you think about it. Uh, yeah, I found some weird things in the notes that Cornette was actually agenting some shows for IWA Mid-South around But he time. hates Ian Rodden. If you'd listen to him, he does, but obviously <laughs> he didn't at that point. Kenny Boland was working as a uh, manager, too. Oh. Sabu, it might, it might have been in ninety eight or ninety nine. Yeah, like, when he first this. started, because they were tri- like OVW and Mid South used talent, you know, and but, that. But but yeah, but still, like he. That's he, such he a worked. fascinating era too. The 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 same guys working USWA, OVW, and and Mid South in like the end of ninety seven, ninety eight. Like it's crazy. Well, it was a, it was similar with Smoky Mountain, where Smoky Mountain towards the end wasn't running a full schedule, yeah. so Cornette was letting his guys work USWA and other territories at that time. So Mike Rapata is a two time champion. Uh, he did. Uh, uh, he he won the belt. Um, from Sabu again, and then oh, you, you skipped over uh, right before Sabu was scheduled to defend the belt against AJ oh. Styles for Bear Barons. I'm sorry, in, I did uh, skip late over 2000, that. which would have been an interesting match at that point in time. But obviously, like uh, Sabu was missing some bookings because of his injuries, and it just seemed like all right, we got to quickly get the belt off of him. And at that time, AJ's about to pop, pop up in WCW. A lot of these guys like. Even Rapata was doing R&B well, security. It was Barron's, and Barron's was running. Yeah. They, he was pretty much running a... Developmental. Yeah. For, yeah. Well, I won't say pretty much. Like They were sending him Jindrak and O'Hare and sending him Power Plant guys, so he was running a developmental. 
uh, yeah, I think like Chase Tatum was working wild side and 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 all that. So, um, but yeah, did Mike. So Mike Rapata, I think they just give him the belt then. Well, it's, uh, Mike Rapata regained the NWA title from Sabu on. 1222 okay. in Nashville. Sabu's jaw is a mess, as is his bad knee, okay. and he couldn't put any weight on it at all. It's so crazy. So they don't have that on cage match. <laughs> so pretty much, I would assume that would have been a quick match if he was just Sabu's body was just breaking down. Um, so here's what I found interesting. 2001. We're now in 2001. Mike Rapata lost by disqualification to Hot Stuff Hernandez. Hernandez as TNA and Impact Wrestling Hernandez. Uh, Mike Rapata uh, and Steve Carino went to a double count out in February 20th, 2001. And then uh, and these NWA and Southwest NWA Florida seem to be the ones that are having the title defenses now. And then Carino defeated Mike Rapata at NWA Florida on April 24th, 2001. Now, we already had them take the belt off Ogawa. They had to drop it off quickly off Sabu. Oh, we'll put it on Steve Carino. He is He has a name. He's with, He was with ECW. This guy's he, he runs he an NWA stamp, promotion. He has a stamp of approval from Dusty, from a lot of old school guys too. That's another thing. Dusty never used again NWA champion for Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling. <laughs> I, I, it did. I he probably also didn't want to deal with deal with <laughs> indie promoters. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that that one blows my mind here. Um, so now we go into the Carino run, and oh, which yeah, go uh, ahead. I also just also want to mention. Uh, just going back a little bit, April 23rd, Steve Carino won the vacant NWA North American title in North Richland Hills, uh, Texas, by beating Rodney, I always say his last name, but Rodney Mack. All right. Um, and then Red Dog. But then uh, that was on April 13th. April 21st, he drops the belt to Robbie Royce, and then two, uh, three days later beats Rapata for the title. So it seemed like... Just looking at that, felt like the title change of Carino might have been a quick last minute thing that he that they probably told him a few days before. And hey, we're going to strap you, get rid of the North American title. That yeah, but then also uh, shortly after that, uh, there was talk. Obviously, Zero One started up, and they desperately wanted not just they really wanted the NWA title to be defended there, um, and then from. An observer in May of 2001, uh, there have been talks zero one because of Carino's size, wanting him to work a program with and drop the title to Otani. While Howard Brody wants to do something to lead to Hashimoto headlining the NWA anniversary show in Tampa. And just going through the notes, it seemed like uh, all the Japanese promotions didn't really see much stock in Carino as champion because of his size. And which like, is a, funny because he's a staple of that era in Japan, including Zero One. Oh yeah, for a long time. But it just seemed like the size, like the Karino Hashimoto deal, fell through. Saying here, Zero One basically felt Karino was too small and had no name in Japan, so he couldn't work with Hashimoto, even when though the NWA title itself means something. So it just seemed like uh, they didn't want they didn't want Hashimoto selling for Karino, and pretty much what it comes out comes down to. Here's what I found interesting, too. This, you put this in the notes, and this blows my mind. Flair was contacted by Howard Brody about possibly facing Steve Carino at the Pillman Show in Cincinnati as a way to give Carino in the NWA title a rub. Flair didn't say no, and because it's a charity show, there's a possibility he may be allowed to do it by Time Warner, although nobody's counting on that being the case. Uh, so WWE's done, but he's still on that Time Warner contract. Yeah, he's under the no-compete clause. He's waiting it out. 
you know the reason why most of the top yeah. WWE names didn't jump to WWE in 2001. Um, yeah, Imagine like, if I put that, that happens. Like Ric Flair going for the NWA title in 2001, just and against Carino. Like, yeah, that would have been. Uh, see, that's what that's see. what this show is about. These what ifs or these things that like almost happen. Ric Flair almost worked an independent show in 2001. And for the NWA World Heavyweight title. I mean, it was the Pillman show, so those were a little bit different. But uh, um, one thing I uh, – so let's see here. So just to touch on the Carino run real quick, um, not a crazy notable list. I'm going to give a shout-out to somebody that we're familiar with. On May 11, 2001, he defeated Rocky Reynolds at the NWA Western Ohio show to retain his title. So shout-out to Rocky Reynolds, which we'll probably have to get we'll talk about Rocky or get Rocky on one of these days. He was a big part of that NWA era and just in, in, in general. Lightweight champion for several years. Yeah. Um, Kevin Northcutt uh, defeated Steve Carino by DQ. Uh, he defeated Pat Tanaka in 2001. Uh, he defeated Luther. Luther from AEW in 2001. Luther getting NWA title shots. Yep. Uh, he defeated Sabu. Luther again. Luther pops up a little bit. He's the, Now at the Pillman show, he beats Flair. David Flair. Uh, I saw that. That's why I put that in the notes specifically for that because he still worked at Flair. He still, he still worked Flair. Uh, he also defeated Buck Quartermain, who I remember from early uh, enhancement talent uh, for uh, TNA and, and WWF. And he defeated the Sandman. Uh, in England, so some notable. I mean, there were some other random guys too, but some some notable opponents for him, uh, Fujita as well during that time period. Um, but uh, how it comes to an end is very interesting. Uh, former ECW star, and this is from the Marion Star, October uh, 14, thousand one. Former ECW star and current NWA champ announced that his retirement from pro wrestling over the weekend. The twenty eight year old said he had lost his passion for the business over the last few months. I've lost my passion for wrestling in North America. Carino wrote through his personal website. For me, it hasn't been fun, and while for a while, while Jim Kettner told me when I first started that if it wasn't fun anymore, it was time to get out, and that is what I'm doing. Will it be forever? Right now, I can honestly tell you without question, uh, yes, I am sure that Michael Jordan and Ryan Sandberg said the same thing when they retired, but they eventually came back. I can't predict the future. I never rule out that I may return one day, but until then, thank you. Steve Carino never retires. So so with that, with that, oh, by the way, I want to go back like a few weeks before that. Uh, he did work Jerry Lawler for the NWA title. So Lawler. Yeah, see, that's not a cage match. That's awesome. So Lawler still getting shots in 2001. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Actually, no, uh, that was that Lawler match was October 14th, and October 3rd is when he was telling people he was retiring. So we're, we're, going, in, we're going in order. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess Carino suggested a best of seven series with Hashimoto for the NWA title, but Hashimoto almost certainly. Wouldn't go for it because that would mean he'd have to put Carino over three times, even if he would get the belt when it was over. So it's amazing that even like throughout his whole reign, that just the Japanese guys did not respect him as an NWA champion. Yeah. And, and 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 zero one got their they got their wish because as soon as Cor- uh, Carino drops that title and retires, boom, Hashimoto's the champion. Uh, he defeats. What was it? it was a three way match. Wasn't oh, it was three way. Okay, sorry. No, that's right. He actually. But see, they have it listed as vacant. Oh, uh, yeah. The championship was held up at the 53rd anniversary show. And Carino um, still. Def- but but this if, way it was Hashimoto Steel. Actually, if I remember Carino. correctly, there was some uh, issue with that where 
It was supposed to end with Hashimoto disqualified to build up a rematch. Uh, Karina was supposed to bleed heavily and wanted to get in Hashimoto's good graces for a program, apparently, as well as bring realism to it. Asked Hashimoto after he bladed to brutally kick to kick him to cut open the room even worse. Hashimoto did that, but unfortunately, whether it was a work or shoot depends on who you believe. Karina was legit knocked out, and Fred Rubenstein, who was a referee, felt he needed to stop the match. So I do want to say Fred Rubenstein, longtime NWA New York promoter, yep. who even up until 10 years ago was still traveling and insisted on being a referee for NWA, any NWA title match. He came to Rochester to referee a NWA North American tag team title match because he thought that someone was going to do a screw job finish. He thought referee Richard Head was going to do a screw job finish. Yo, that Richard Head, man, he's, he's devious. Um like, so that, that that that's like the ridiculousness. Hashimoto is something differently, but yeah, legend, legend in the business, definitely a legitimate champion. Doesn't have that long of a run, but here's what I found interesting: his like so. There's probably a lot of Japanese defenses that aren't on here, but they have Hashimoto defeating Dylan and Gary Steele and Steve Carino in a four way event. Um, that was the day after he won the belt. And then in January 2002, this is great. In the in the name of obscure challengers to the NWA title, we've talked about Tugboat. We've talked about Doink the Clown. Um, Nathan Jones, <laughs> in 13 minutes and 17 seconds at 0-1, uh, Hashimoto defeated Nathan Jones. And then... Uh, oh, wait, go. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, going back a little bit, when... Uh, so Carino and Hashimoto had the uh, no contest where the title was held up. During that time, they did an old, a typical old-school Luthez-type idea where Carino went to work an overseas tour in the U.K. and defended the belt. So he defended that's the cool. belt in Essex, U.K. So that's against, where those weird results are, yeah. Yeah, so has. like he technically wasn't a champ, but he was still defending. He defended against the Sandman. Yes, yeah, I brought up the Sandman. Uh, yeah, the Sandman's on that show. And, and then Hammerlock, it, it, where he technically loses it to Gary Steele, but they don't recognize that. I mean, fan yeah. title change. Yep. But also, he worked a show as NBA champion Pin Sandman. They did an angle where Earthquake John Tenta challenged him to a title match. See, if that is not on here, that is fa- – <laughs> I, I don't think – I don't believe it happened because I oh. couldn't find the results. I mean, 10 in 2002 like, is still good. You've seen that dark match. like Yeah, but just the fact of John Tenta getting an NWA title match, even though eh, – whether he was a champ or not, but still. But, yeah, then we're going into 2002 with Hashimoto uh, as champ, and now Hashimoto and Severn is getting built up. And from everything I'm reading leading up to this is that now uh, – the NWA is trying to turn a heel during this whole thing. Uh, let me see if I can find the, find the notes somewhere here. Uh, I think Howard Brody is turning as a heel commissioner and wants – or a heel representative and basically telling Hashimoto that he has to defeat other opponents to get title shots. That <sighs> – I know, because I remember they did, like, a couple different heel NWM runs in this period. No, Wildside had it, too, um, where the NWA guys were pretty much the heel, the NWA elite. Um, okay, no, I'm wrong. It's NWA President Jim Miller. Uh, he came to Japan, uh, and he 
insisted on an American referee, Fred Rubenstein, again. <laughs> uh, and there was some shenanigans going on with Severn winning the belt. And then they were building something up throughout early 2002 where Hashimoto had to go through a bunch of different guys. He had to win uh, a, another NWA title to even be considered for a shot against Severn. So they're doing WWF-style storylines now for the NWA title. Which, in that time period, they don't have really any television. I mean, they're working with Zero One, and they have NWA Florida. But, I mean, at, at this point in 2001, they're, they're grasping for straws. I mean, putting working with Japan and Hashimoto is trying to legitimize the title again. Yeah. That's what you're but, trying to do. But you're trying to legitimize it, but you're also doing heel referees, and you're doing heel authority figures. Where, uh, right here, President Jim Miller said Hashimoto couldn't get a title rematch with Dan Severn unless he first beats Sean Hernandez. He beats Sean Hernandez, and then... Uh, Which he, he wins still, a national title, too. Yeah. yeah, he wins a national title, but then Jim Miller comes out and says, he, you still have to win the NWA Canadian title first before you get a shot. <laughs> so now they're just sitting around winning title belts. Hashimoto's just Ultimo dragging it with NWA Yeah, belts. until he's like, can I finally get my shot? Uh, so, well, uh, so Severn wins the belt, beats Hashimoto. The Severn runs not long. Uh, he... Uh, Defeats Hashimoto on March 9, 2002, in Corican Hall. And then he defends it about a month later uh, at the CWF in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, against the Big Kahuna. <laughs> and then that's pretty much I all. Wish it was sh- King Kahlua. Yes. <laughs> that's it. How did he never get a shot? No Metal Maniac? Like, there's a lot of guys that could have NWA yeah. shots in well, that time period. What was Metal Maniac's record in the 90s? Like, 0 and 500? <laughs> yeah. Like, still, he never beat Snuka. Give him a run. Maybe if he would have ever got that one elusive victory against Snuka, like, maybe he could have gotten that title oh. shot. In, in, in this time period, too, like, uh, so Howard Brody's desperately, so basically the NWA is TNA TNA starting and Howard Brody's trying to put together an, an uh, a conglomeration of indie promoters called Ring Warriors which would include uh, David Balcom, Fred Rubenstein, <laughs> Shelton Goldberg, Ernie Todd, uh, Max Secchi and Howard Lipnit of the short-lived WXO group. That's another promotion had television should have did something with the NWA. The NWA should have seemed more of like all right, it's inevitable that TNA starting up they're going to be the NWA that Howard Brody's trying to create his a own new NWA, conglomeration, yeah. yeah, to try to like keep his power, pretty much. But like, yeah, from, and then we're getting into this now with uh, NWA is trying, or TNA starting up. They want Severn, obviously. Severn can't make their first show, which is legit. Was legit. Severn hmm. had a booking, uh, had a shoot fight. He couldn't make it. And so, real quick, I just want to, while we're getting leading into that, uh, from Dr. Mike, the controversial Dr. Mike Lano, San Francisco Examiner, June 3rd, 2002. The NWA board of directors uh, have stripped World Heavyweight uh, the title from Dan the B. Severin, the former UFC and NWA wrestling champion, wasn't able to schedule the pay per view because of a shoot fighting commitment and seemingly lost the title without breaking a sweat. He just won it back after defeating Hashimoto in Japan. A Severin Shamrock rematch done right could be ruled huge since both did UFC. So it looks like the idea was for Dan Severin okay, you can't make it. We're going to strap Shamrock, but bring you back. Well, that's, and that's a weird thing. Cause, like, what Meltzer talked about. Uh, I guess Bob Ryder called, tried to get Severn for the original date. Once again, asked him. Severn said he can't do it. But because uh, 
TNA at that time was taping every other week. So like the first the first episode, the debut episode was live. Then immediately after they taped the next week. And then in two weeks to come back for the third episode. So he couldn't make the first two weeks, but he could make the third. So really in hindsight, like it made no sense why you couldn't just have Shamrock win the Battle Royal or the Gauntlet and then play it up for the next week and then do the match the third week. Or a two-week number one contenders tournament. Two. But according – like Meltzer talks about it that uh, it just came off that – they really didn't want Severn as champion. This was a convenient way of getting the belt off them. Because, like, at that point, they had Jarrett, Shamrock, Hall, and you would say, what, Wall was probably their fourth biggest star, or at least the guy they wanted to push? Yeah. If you did a small tournament with those four, boom, then you lead into that. That that, that would have made the most sense. Um, but then, again, like... Um, what if Severn does make it, though? Or what if he can Like... Does he have the same thing like Shamrock, where he only has the belt for a little bit? Oh or? yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see Severn. Considering who's booking uh, TNA, I mean, at that time it wasn't Russo wasn't in there yet. But like considering the Jarretts and you had Ed Ferrara, I can't see Severn having a long run there. Not what what they were trying to put out. Yeah, not with what they were trying to put out. There was no way. I don't know if Severn would have agreed to drop the belt to Ron Killings. Or even like Jarrett. Did. Yeah, I think it would have been you would need a transitional period. I think Shamrock probably would have took the title from Severn. And then if dropped the, it. The, yeah, the, if, the if they even wanted Severn. But like, what was weird, shortly after, like a few weeks later, uh, I guess there was talks with Don Fry coming in to work with Shamrock. So Which they, is, were, they were all about MMA, sh- MMA yeah. shoot fights. They just didn't want Severn, it seems. And Fry's the guy that never worked the States as a wrestler. He never did. He was always talked about. Yeah. Never did. Um, but so, yeah, it was just it was just super weird that like all right, that they never brought in Severn after that. Even though like no. now they're talking about Fry. So like, and if you're looking at guys that have notable good shape, like he was there. Um, they just wanted they wanted a fresh start. Yeah, they they wanted their champion, and even Shamrock seemed odd, and it what didn't last long. Shamrock was just because of the name, because like you look at who else is in that tournament, he was really only the guy like. Outside of Jeff. Scott Shamrock, Hall, if he's reliable. I, there I, was talk that he wasn't even going to be reliable for that. Yeah, so. I mean, Scott, strapping Scott Hall in 2001 would maybe be a little bit of a risk, or 2002 would be even a little at that, risk. But. Even at that point, like I, I feel like they were looking at it, – it's there's an, there's an issue with any new Fed starting up that straps a guy that is seen as a mid-carter. Yeah. Scott Hall was a mid-carter. I'm not saying he couldn't have been a world oh, champ. Oh, come on. I mean, this is not that type of podcast, but come on, Ash. He's a main eventer. I'm, I'm not. Razor Ramon could have had the oh, belt no, I'm not, multiple times. I'm not debating out. that. He could have been the champion, but I'm saying in the mindset of a lot of promotions, a lot of fans, Jarrett, even though Jarrett was. Scott Hall was seen as more of a main eventer than Jeff Jarrett at that point. I'm not saying he couldn't have held the belt, but I'm, look, I'm saying perception of what the fans thought and what promoters at that point thought. Like starting up a new Fed. In the early 2000s, a lot of feds that were starting up around this time felt the same way. You got to put the belt on someone legit. Even AEW, they put like could they put the belt on uh, on on uh, Adam Page, Scorpio Sky, yeah. Adam Page, whatever. Yeah, could they put the belts on them? The yeah, they definitely could have. They went for the sure bet. They went for a name value guy that was seen as a main eventer elsewhere in Jericho. And I'm not saying I agree with it or I don't agree with it, but at the 
when you look at a Fed starting up, you want to put the bout on someone that's recognizable that the fans saw as legit. And Shamrock had that WWE run, even though he was a top mid character in WWE, never held the heavyweight title. He was someone that was legit that they could have put the belt on him and get a reaction at right off the gates. All right, so we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here as we talk about July first, two thousand two. Shamrock wins the belt uh, in a, uh, a Rumble style match, um, and and that's it. That's all she wrote for the NWA title in its independent wrestling uh, journey. And uh, just to kind of wrap it up here, I mean, from what started as controversy with e- ECW and just just pettiness and. Um, I feel like it never found found a comfortable home until 2002. Even you had NWA Florida, NWA New Jersey, uh, NWA Southwest. I mean, I feel like Severn was the best NWA heavyweight champion, probably post-93. I will still battle that. Um, but I feel like they should have we t- i talked about brought up USWA. I brought up the American Wrestling Federation, as weird as that sounds. I brought up the WXO. There was missed opportunities there to be a television based title i mean they had a wf but that never defended and going going through like even after 2002 like there's a few things like we'll hit on different podcasts i especially want to discuss how uh nwa promoters after sting won the nwa title in tna how uh, there were promoters that called and tried to get dates on Sting, and Sting just had didn't want to work a indie fed in front of three hundred people. No, but I, like, and I think Jarrett did it a little bit. Oh, Jarrett did. Jarrett gave a discount if you were an NWA fed, but that that kind of also ties into the whole thing of the, all the nineties, where you had promoters uh, that thought they were too big for the riches, and all throughout the two thousands, the same thing. You had Brody, you had Bob Trobick that all wanted dates on the champion and they thought even though NWA TNA signed an agreement to have complete control over the bout they felt like they it was their right to be able to get to dates the on the champion. champ and yeah you had AJ that could still work indies you had Jared that was working indies but then like Raven was working indies during that time but you had Christian as a champ but you had Sting as a champ like they're, they're not, not working indies Sting no. is not working in indie so like it's just it's the tale of the NWA in the 90s and going forward, you had a lot of promoters that just thought that thought, looked out for themselves, wanted champs that they could make money off of, and then wanted more than they were willing. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're just paying a fee and then you're drawing two to 300 people. Yeah. Does Sting want to do that? No. Um, a lot but, of them holding on to an old mentality. Oh, look, I'm the NWA, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, with and and with that being said, it was a brand that str- like it still survived. Um, one of the things I want to touch upon in the future is uh, Dale Gagner's AWA. That's going to be a great episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, speaking of future episodes, uh, our episode next month we're going to do this about once a month for you guys at least to start. Uh, next month here in the BSABP Radio Network will be uh, the localized topic for Ash and myself, but it will be the ballpark brawls. They were super indie shows before there was super indie shows for mix of names and and and, and super indie talent. Uh, and I think a lot of you that are listening that are not from the area are going to be surprised on some of these lineups and everything that happened on these shows. They had a good, I think, four to five year time span here. Um, other than that, the Facebook, the Twitter, Instagram, that will all be out uh, very short. It'll be out pretty much by the time here that you're listening to this. Rediscovering the Indies, an independent wrestling history podcast. If you have any topics you want us to cover, let us know. Uh, 
and or any guests, or if you want to come on as a guest and you have a connection to one of these topics, please do let us know here. Um, other than that, do you have anything, Ash? Nope. This was great. Uh, and that was the NWA title from 1994 to 2002. I'm Chris Gello. That's Jonathan Ash. And you were listening to Rediscovering the Indies, an independent wrestling history podcast. We gotta call this thing. Tighten up. Come here. All right, guys. Here's the situation. Two minutes left. Zero timeouts. Down by a touchdown. We gotta drive 75 yards. All right. We can do this thing. I believe in each and every one of you. But real quick, did you guys know that the Two Point Conversation podcast runs five days a week, Monday through Friday, with various co-hosts and different themes every day? And then you can listen to them on BICBP-radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. So what's the play? Just, all right, just, come on, hurry up. Get to the line and just run, and I will get it to somebody, all right? Come on, on three. Ready. Set. Mother. Delay of game. Offense.